Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are The Minimalists. And we're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman is here. What it is. And we, of course, got the rest of our team. Jordan's here. Sean's here. Danny's here. And watching live via the live stream, we have Emma and Social Jess and Podcast Sean, the rest of our team. We've got a special guest for you today. But first, big thanks to our patrons. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% 100% advertisement free because say it with me, y'all. Advertisements, Advertisements suck. suck. Yeah, they do. <laughs> oh, I don't even know where to start. Let's just say this. We have a special, special guest here today. Zach Bush, MD, is a triple board certified physician who specializes in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care, the latter of which is particularly useful for today's topic. Mm. Dr. Bush is also an internationally recognized educator and expert on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. He founded the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Bush about a topic that many people are scared to death to discuss. (laughs) We're talking about simplifying death. Dr. Bush. Thank you so much for joining us today. What a pleasure to be with all of you. Thanks for being here, man. It's really good. This is a listener-driven show. And when we started talking to our audience about this topic, a lot of people, shockingly, had questions. And so I thought we would dive into some of those questions right away. We'll start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, you can give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Our first question today is from Sarah in Savannah, Georgia. My name is Sarah, and I'm a Patreon supporter from Savannah, Georgia. I was calling to ask Dr. Bush if he might be able to give some sort of insight into how those that are in the active dying process are seemingly effortlessly able to let go of possessions, of regrets, fear, just really anything that keeps them from being in the present moment. I've been a caregiver for over 20 years and have had the honor of caring for those who have passed. And I am just in awe of how they are able to release everything and just be in that present moment. Mm. And if possible, I would love to learn that skill. Zach, I'm reminded of the title of our, our last Netflix film was called Less Is Now, which is a play on the Mies van der Rohe, Less Is More. But the thing we wanted to convey there is it's impossible to sort of cling to the now, although we always try. The clinging always happens with the, the past or we're clinging to some idealized version of the future. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite philosophers, a guy named Kapil Gupta. And he said, I wish everyone would have a near-death experience every six months so they would know what it's like to truly live. And so if we're talking to Sarah here about that living in the moment, being present, quite often those near-death experiences or the, the period where you are near death 
allows us to finally live for the first time in our lives. It's so true. Yeah, the process of dying biologically is an, an exciting letting go of a huge memory bank of emotional baggage. And so you were talking about clinging to the experience of now. We do that all the time. It takes a lot of energy, obviously, to cling to something. And I think the ones that we do it most often with are the, the polar extremes. We cling to fear and we cling to love. And we try to hold on to both of those as soon as they occur because they justify the one, the fear, justify the way that we actually deep down feel. And so a new stimulus of fear comes in and we grab onto it because it justifies all the things that we've been feeling. It's like, oh my goodness, thank God I'm afraid of this external thing. Mm. When in fact, we're probably afraid of something much more internal, a, a disconnect within ourselves. On the other side of the equation, you experience that love stimulus. You find that vibration of love for a moment. You're like, oh my God, this is what I can't get myself. This is this is what I've been needing, and we cling to that. Of course, as soon as you grab onto either of those, they become elusive and, and they start to slip through your hands. Fear will often bloom into paranoia and once it's grabbed onto. And so th th that, that initial stimulus of kind of fight or flight suddenly moves to, to a fear of isolation and everything's against me. And that kind of separation uh, you know, event happens. When you grab onto love, it quickly transforms into duty or expectation. And so we do these things all the time. And in the effort of clinging to, to the moment, we often find ourselves out of energy to keep clinging. And so what we often do is bury those things within us. And so it takes less energy, I think, to bury something within us. So we bury our fears, we bury a memory of love, and we try to remember those things, and, you know, access those at will. Unfortunately, the process of burying an emotion is actually a very physiologic reality. And we tend to put specific emotions in specific parts of our body. Uh, Chinese medicine for 4,000 years has been working on detailing out what this, this map of the body's emotional history looks like. And examples of the base of the lungs is where we store unprocessed grief. Uh, the spleen is where we process worry. Uh, that is often specific to uh, our inability to care for others. Um, the, the kidneys are where we kind of store our, our maternal stress of not able to nest or take care of those around us appropriately. Our low back is where we carry financial stress, especially if it's financial stress around our immediate home or family. So low back pain is an, an element or an expression of financial stress or the inability to care for those in your nest. And so those things have been played out. And so what our caller is referring to here is in witnessing somebody in the dying process, they suddenly start letting go of these buried phenomenon that have kept them in a fearful slash love-deprived state uh, over their, their lifetime. And they've manifested all kinds of dis-ease, pain, fatigue, disorders, diseases in that manifestation of all of this buried treasure within them, it seems. And the cool thing about biologic death is what's happening is you're losing the water structure within the cells. And so as cells lose their vitality, they start to lose the crystalline structure. And that crystalline water structure inside your cells is the hard drive. It is the memory bank of all of your stored stuff. And so as we start to die, 
we start dissolving at that water crystal level and we start having to let go. We can't any longer hold on to or keep buried these things. And so you go to the therapist and you're healthy and you got all this crystalline memory of all that you've buried. You've got to go through a process. But when you're biologically dying, you don't have to process those. They're simply slipping out of your reality. Mm. And so that's what the caller is witnessing is she's witnessing somebody slipping out of the entire memory of their emotional traumatic path and starting to be alive. And I really have seen that over and over again where you will hear crystalline truth, crystalline beauty coming out of the mouths of people dying because for the first time they see life for what it is, which is constantly beautiful, which is constantly in a state of expression of energy and is a manifestation of light. And they can see that suddenly because they've had to let go of all of the, the beliefs that have kept them disconnected from that reality. Mm. And we get there before we know we have to go. I'm excited for that question. I think that that's exactly what I've put my last, you know, 12 years into. And it, a lot of it came down to this experience on hospice. So when I was an associate medical director for a hospice organization in Virginia, we were seeing 80 admissions to my service every week of people that were given less than six months to live. But in the U.S., we're very hesitant to put people on hospice because we always want people to have hope. And we, we hate that discussion of like, you know what, we've done everything. Your body is dying. We would like to give you the opportunity to live for quality instead of quantity of life. And let's just make you comfortable. That's a very hard conversation for us to have for some reason in the Western medical thing. I think it has to do with the fear of death. It feels like a failure as a physician to say, you know what, we we failed. We we didn't stave death off, you know. And so we, we've put ourselves, we've pitted ourselves against death as if that was some sort of metric for success or failure. And in that journey, I think that what we end up seeing is about, you know, 10 to 15% of people admitted to hospice get discharged from hospice because they suddenly start to live. And what tends to happen is we discontinue the medications and all of the therapies. And shockingly, when you stop, you know, 13 medications, six of which have centrally active qualities to them, and you let that brain clear its pharmaceutical chaos, it can certainly turn back on. Mm. And that person suddenly gets the spark of life back. And it's really, biology doesn't drive death. It's the spark of curiosity, the spark of creativity that drives a lifespan. Mm. And so if you if you allow people to reconnect their curiosity and their creativity, they can suddenly, you know, all the organ systems start coming back online. Six months later, they have to be discharged from hospice because they're not dying fast enough. And then three years later, they die of something else and, you know, peacefully in their bed or whatever, you know. So, yeah. so the exciting thing is to answer your question is in that moment of starting to be alive, you don't have to die. Mm. And so death is an opportunity for us as a species come into a state of vitality that just doesn't tend to invite itself in our current social constructs. Our current behavioral patterns are keeping us from this life within the body. And so sometimes it's the invitation of death that gives us the opportunity to live. And amazingly, I think that's where we're at as a species. We can see our own hospice moment now. We are, we have an, a pending extinction and we can see it and we can scientifically predict it's 80, 100 years out. That's a pretty short lifespan for a species. So we're on our hospice moment. So can we do what you just asked? Can we start to live? Do, are we going to make the decision to live a vital life or are we going to continue to drug ourselves into a stupid state of death? Is, mm. 
is there like a, a practice or routine or something that can help us release the crystallization that you were talking about? Because like, if I was to answer Sarah's question, I would have been like, oh, you know, for me, meditation helps me live in the moment and it's, it's all up here. Mm-hmm. And what I hear you saying is it's mostly not up here. It's kind of stored in other areas. Is there, is there a process of letting that crystallization go or? A, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're talking about detoxing the, yeah. the memory bank, basically. Yeah. How do we detox the memory bank of the human body from these emotions? There's a whole host of avenues into this. There's not one prescription at all. Mm. Um, I'd find that if, if I was going to have to say one thing, it would simply be nature. Mm. Uh, yeah. I thought you were going to say ketamine. Somebody, (laughs) that's the Los Angeles answer. (laughs) That is the LA answer. I didn't even know about ketamine treatments until moving to LA. Anyway, yeah, no, I love the I love the answer of nature. That's that's great, man. That's that's how that's how nature spelled in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, K K E. Yeah. Oh, it's also it's also like the six letter word for God. Yeah, but right. um, at any rate, so you know the the ketamine you know experience is ultimately one. Anybody doing any plant medicine tends to come back with a story of like, oh my God, I saw nature and I was one with it. Yeah, you know, and so whether you need the plant medicine to show you, smack you upside the head and be like, yeah. dude, idiot, you're from me. Yeah, or you simply just go out in nature and spend three days backpacking in the wilderness or surfing or whatever it is that's going to float your boat out there, the detox happens almost immediately Mm. because to stay in the vibrational memory of your traumatic emotional past, you cannot be present. Mm. And a tree refuses to let you be anywhere but right now. And so... My favorite pastime, I think, if, you know, in that nature experience, if you're just feeling completely overwhelmed with life, if you're feeling so heavy with the emotional burden that you're currently carrying, lay down on your back in ideally like mid-morning, like 10 a.m. or mid-afternoon, lay down on your back under a tree and look up through the branches and leaf patterns at a sky with, you know, combination of blue sky and white clouds moving by and feel the tree and the patterns of light that occur through those branches, the way that they create these fractals and these quantum kind of relationships to the light behind them are a neurologic reprogramming deep within the body. Mm. And the body is going to start to remember an original math. And that's really what nature does. It's just, oh, it's a basically a tuning fork that's humming these original mathematical frequencies. Mm. And for that, we remember who we are. And for that, we remember the original math of your liver, of your lungs, of your spleen. And your organ system can start to let go, tune out the, the mem- memorial of, of your emotional reality and mm. come into this present moment. And at this time of death that the caller was talking about, you're in this extraordinary transition where you're moving from a finite biologic expression of an infinite being. Okay, so the infinite being some people would like to call a soul whatever you want to call it, it is a well-established energetic center that holds a mathematical reality for your biology to line up on. It is the, the energetic template or blueprint for the biology to respond to. And so how do you form in the womb of your mother? You follow this biologic uh, kind of map that's based on an energetic blueprint and we can image the energy field. We do this in our clinic for the last 15 years. We've been 
imaging the human energy field to s- study how it carries its traumatic memory. And so you can see your energy field different than your energy field mm. because you've stored energetic trauma or memory in different locations of each of your bodies. And that gives you a blueprint of what's going to happen in the next 10 years, 15 years, or the next three years in your biology. Mm. And so the energy field really is the map. It is the blueprint for which the biology is going to follow. And so death is this beautiful experience where you are letting go of the biologic expression of an infinite blueprint and you're becoming infinite again. Mm. And the beauty of that infinite being is it cannot carry your emotional history. Mm. It does not have water structure to carry the emotion in. And so that's why you have to let go of the emotional burden is you are literally moving back into your infinite expression. Yeah, and you have And you have no choice at that point. And that letting go is beautiful. I could tell you one thing that is has been difficult for me is uh, the clinging to what's going to happen as soon as I'm gone. I worry about my family or what if I get into some sort of terrible accident. And so uh, very practically, Sarah, we have an essay on our website. It's called Scared to Death of Death. And it's uh, minimalistscom slash death. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it talks about getting together a living will, power of attorney, last will and testament, uh, becoming an organ donor, if you so choose, and some of the benefits of doing that to help others once you've, you've passed away. But handling those things and revisiting them occasionally has given me a peace of mind because I have a, a DNR. I don't want to be resuscitated and kept on you know, ventilators or whatever, but someone else may want that and that's totally fine. But understanding what you want so you can have that all written down and clear for your physicians, for your partners, for anyone else who's in your life, for your family, so you're not burdening them as well. And of course, coming up uh, in a little bit here, we're going to talk about what to do with your stuff before you die Mm. as well. Sarah, I'd love to send you a copy of our book, Everything That Remains. Uh, Ryan and I wrote this book a decade ago, and it it was a story about finally beginning to live in the moment, focusing on something that allowed us to focus, to actually be present. Because when Ryan and I were in the corporate world, beforehand, I was telling you, we, we've known each other since we were fat little fifth graders. And we thought the key to our happiness was to get out of the poverty we grew up in. And then we would be happy as soon as we started making money and working 80 hours a week. But we were always so f- future oriented that we never made time to actually live in the moment until we started to walk away from that and realizing like, no, success isn't tomorrow. It's not next year. It's not next decade. It is right now. You can, and by the way, happiness doesn't exist a day from now, a year from now. It exists only in the present moment. Mm. So Sarah, I'm going to send you a copy of Everything That Remains. If you like our podcast, you'll enjoy the uh, audiobook version, or if you want the book book or the ebook version, we'll send those to you as well. Susan from Richmond, Virginia has a question for us. This is Susan, and I am a Patreon VIP, and I have a question for Zach Bush. He recently said in an interview with Danica Patrick that when the soul leaves the body, it's instantaneous. And if you are present with that person as they transition, you know exactly when this happens. My mother passed away six days ago, and it was an honor to hold her hand for the last 36 hours Mm. as she declined to transitioning. 
I was there and I'm not sure if I really witnessed her soul leaving her body. I couldn't tell any physical difference in myself or any difference in holding her hand or any difference in her mannerisms. Can you tell me what I may have missed? And maybe I will be able to remember something prior to her last breath. Zach, I'm reminded of a Ram Das quote. For the soul, death is just another moment. Mm. And I've heard you talk about some things similar to that. But it seems that Susan had a particular expectation as though something was supposed to happen here. But then I didn't experience it the way that I thought I was going to experience it. And maybe there's a feeling of loss there. Like, oh, I, I should have had something different happen in that moment. Can we talk to Susan about that? Yeah, Susan, condolences on your loss there. It's a journey. And when you lose a parent into really discovering yourself again, I think when you lose that older generation and you suddenly realize you're you're the matriarch now in your line can be a really powerful time of uh, reckoning in some ways your own expectations on self as well as perhaps that you know expectation that that maternal line may have put into you. So just uh, condolences to you and also excited for you in this uh, next chapter as you're going. The moment of death does vary so much as to how it expresses itself. And um, the moment of departure of a soul from an energy field is something that I think happens, you know, instantaneously in the sense of, you know, a millionth of a second phenomenon. But the... that experience is basically a soul coming into its you know, eternal state immediately, letting go of the, the finite expression through biology. But the speed at which the biology lets go of those vibrations can, can actually take three full days. So in many spiritual and religious faiths, the, the practices are not to move or bury a body until three days have passed with an understanding that the energetics of that soul are still dissipating from from the body. And so for some, you'll see this presence of the soul kind of be palpable within a room for days afterwards, where for many, I think you see an immediate escape from the body's geolocation, if you will, and the soul's in flight. And it's going. Hmm. And I've heard the whole gamut from the near-death experiences on hospice. So in, in hospice care, you're, you've got you know a couple hundred people in your service that are every single day at the veil. They're at this thin fabric of realities, if you will, and that they, they come in and they remember they're, they're dying of something and they can talk to you in that space. And then a moment later, they are with ancestral lines and saints and angels and, and they're traveling the cosmos. And, and then they're suddenly back in the hospital room and they're like, oh, I thought I was gone, but I'm still here. And so I've heard so many extraordinary stories. And for many, it's perhaps what you're experiencing here with Susan. Yeah. Susan, your experience with your mother is that you saw her last breath and yet you felt the presence stay. You felt no change in the presence of your mother. There's many near-death experiences where suddenly the body goes hyper aware of its environment such that it becomes kind of this third person or third body looking down at the situation. And so your mother, instead of embodying the physical, may have shifted to what would have been a perspective above the body. And so it's looking down from above and seeing you holding her hand, 
bearing you in love from above and in this new perspective, seeing the relationship of your physical body with this physical body, but also she can see at that moment your soul, your your energy field, because she's no longer looking through human eyes. She's, no, she's now looking at the energetic expression of your infinite being. So in this presence that you're feeling, my mom didn't disappear. Where did she go? Is she still here? It's very likely she was still there and is, you know, taking up space in that that room in a new dimension, in a new expression, if you will, in this infinite state. And she's experiencing you in a new way. And what I can be very confident in telling you is that the there's an enormous amount of information exchange that happens between loved ones when the veil is this thin, when when you're passing and when you're starting this new birth process into your new infinite state and you're signing up for your next finite journey, whatever that might look like, there's so much information that transits this space and it, it doesn't necessarily reveal itself in that moment. But in these coming weeks and months, it's not going to surprise me if you start to experience something that feels like a memory of your mother, but it's actually a new thought, something that you actually haven't heard her say before, but it's a new truth that you now know from your mother. And that's what's transiting in those first 24, 72 hours. Mm. For other souls, the the near-death experiences, they are immediately shooting off the surface of the planet and they go travel in the cosmos and then suddenly they're sucked back into the body. and, And those are the ones that you can feel that rapid disappearance of. But I'd say if... If all of you listening are wanting to experience something of this transitional form, then I would say uh, holding your hand on the top of the head or kind of the occiput is what it's referred to. It's kind of the back of your head where you feel the, the little hollow at the top of your spine there at the base of the skull. If you feel that little hollow on both sides, you can hold the, the back of the head. And it's one of the most comforting things you can do to another human being is put your hand behind their head there. And it gives them this deep sense of, I am cared for, I'm held. And that's where the soul tends to transit. And when I say soul, this energetic you know, blueprint tends to transit out of the body. And it doesn't mean it disappears from the room. Like I said, you may still feel it in the space. But it's very common that you would feel, feel a buzz or a, a passage of, of energy as it leaves the body. You can often feel it through the top of the head as well. So... Either place, you know, whatever makes that that patient or, or that loved one comfortable um, is an interesting place to experience their last few breaths. And then that escape of energy can happen anywhere in the next couple of hours. And so it may not happen. At, it's unlikely to happen right at the moment of the last breath because last breath is not actually the, the biologic death even. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to happen those minutes, hours afterwards. And so just being present with the, the body and whether you feel that or not is irrelevant. It's going to happen. And that expansion their perspective on you, your perspective at the soul level of them, all of this precious you know, space is going to be had regardless of what your biologic experience is with it, whether you can feel it in the biologic senses or not. This is occurring. The, the infinite is occurring. And it's beautiful uh, to imagine what your mother wanted to tell you in those, those last you know, hours as she stayed present in the room with you. Mm. Man, there's so much I have to compartmentalize here. Because like I was raised Jehovah's Witness and it really, it really screwed me up a lot. Mm -hmm. So like when I kind of had the veil ripped away from like this construct, um, it's hard for me to accept like things like the soul and and energy and things like that. But what I'll say is the way that you're discussing it, this is like the best way I've heard anyone talk about it that can help me hold space for something like this. So yeah, thanks for 
thanks for explaining all this in a, in a way that isn't like too woo woo <laughs> but a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never experienced anything more trippy than hospice care. Mm. Like it, mm. it challenges your sense of reality yeah. so severely. I can only um, imagine. When yeah. you're minute by minute, day by day, listening to these near-death experiences, and you have people, you know, coming back with conversations from, you know, three ancestral lines back and they're explaining to you what great grandmother wanted, you know, and mm. expressed in this line and the wisdoms that they're carrying. It'd be one thing if it was like, oh, I talked to grandma. Mm. But when she tells you what grandma said mm. and the vibrational experience you have and the transit of that information, there's a knowingness at the cellular level when you hear truth. Mm. Uh, there's uh, some people get goosebumps. Some people just get this little flutter in their belly. Mm. But most of us have had the experience of a biologic response to truth. And when you're in hospice, my goodness, do you hear a lot of those vibrational truths. Wow. And you see them being pulled from some other space than this person's lifetime experience. And so it's a really trippy challenging place to come to terms with because what in medicine we like to do is if we see an aberrant situation where we feel like oh my gosh that that's inexplicable maybe the person had a near-death experience comes back with this information or maybe they have this near-death experience and come back with information they suddenly heal their their metastatic cancer and then they go on to live a long life wow. all of these things happen yeah and Einstein was the one to say, you know, there's only two ways to live life, either the understanding that everything is a miracle or that there is no such thing as miracles. Mm, and yeah. hospice really takes wow. you to that edge of realizing like, man, this is undeniable that everything is a miracle. And this whole belief that we live in a finite world with Newtonian physics yeah. dictating these linear processes, not yeah. possible. Yeah. Um, and so Einstein got a glimpse into that. I think anybody who studies relativity or chaos theory or any of these quantum sciences, it, it's a full-on plant medicine journey every day because yeah. it just doesn't doesn't compute in our physical perceived reality. And yet we know deeply that this is the fabric of the universe. The fabric of the universe is this. And so, you know, I, maybe it's worth just, you know, addressing the elephant in the room, which you brought up, which is religion. Mm -hmm. And how does it deal with death you know yeah. so it's very difficult to to deal with the topic of death without having to peel back the layers in our own religious constructs belief systems mm -hmm. all of this and what i would say is religion has been a long-standing body of philosophy therefore a science the the only true science on earth is philosophy physics comes out of philosophy and so philosophy is a system of experiencing the, the world that make sense of the patterns that we see. And so religion has been trying to make sense of a quantum reality long before we had quantum science to tell us what it was trying to describe, you yeah, know? Right. And so we developed the concept of a soul as like this thing that needed to be saved from purgatory and then the church exploits that and we're selling, you know, all of these tokens that people have to buy to buy their way out of purgatory in case they sinned. And like, so we've done a lot of extractive technologies around religion and the fear of death. Um, and so, that, yes, we have a lot of baggage, but I think it's worthwhile to just acknowledge at some level, religion was trying to explain the, the experience that we're all having in death and rebirth, that there's an infinite thing mm -hmm. that's expressing a finite lifetime. Yeah, And that's all religion is in the end, is it's trying to marry those two realities yeah. through storytelling, mm -hmm. through a narrative. And 
the narratives are being brought from the other side of the veil often. You know, you have people who have near-death experiences and they start whole religions. You know, I think yeah. Joseph Smith, I think that was some version of a near, near-death experience and we get the Mormon church. And, mm-hmm. and so people come back with these nuggets of truth from deep experiences in nature or whatever it is that they have. And that nugget of truth has a resonance frequency that's, that's very conductive mm-hmm. and it's very... Uh, very much like the tuning fork in an orchestra. You hit, hit an A tuning fork and every string in the orchestra that's an A is going to start humming. Mm. And because every one of us have an infinite nature to us, when you strike that tuning fork of an infinite truth, it's going to be like, oh my gosh, I just found it. I found the secret to life. Found mm. things. So that's what draws us into religion is this tuning fork of the infinite. Mm. It's then the finite structures of their religion that start to give us, you know, avenues into exploitation or control. And it's often where we, you know, I think do the societal version of the memory bank that we talked about earlier in a body. In that crystalline water structure, we we have a hard drive of memory. In society, I think it's narratives, it's, it's social narratives that become the crystalline structure of, of the, the traumatized emotions. Mm. So we use religion as a vessel for traumatized emotions as a society, and we push them all into this one structure that we call Catholicism or Jehovah's Witness or whatever mm. your your bucket is. Mm. And we and, and then we're now looking at that original vibration of the infinite through the, the filter of this collective trauma of emotion. Mm. And therefore we get, you know, some of the perturbations of religion. Yeah. Uh, but I think that in the end, we all come face to face with what I would call energetics or spirituality mm-hmm. outside of religion. Nobody can take their religion into the infinite. It's it's yeah. not, there's no human narrative on that other side to, yeah. c- to carry that story. So I think all of us have the opportunity to detox not only our own bodies, but also our social constructs, be them mm. religions or anything else. We could detox those. We could shake that off and start to acknowledge, dude, you are an infinite being. And I can feel that. When I gave you a hug this morning, I could feel your infinite essence. And the more you try to do that in a hug, the better you're going to become present. And hugs are a super powerful energetic you know, tool. And that became my main diagnostic tool in clinics is I'd meet somebody new in the waiting room, I'd give them a big hug, and I would just become super present in the 15, 20 seconds of the hug. By the time it's 20 seconds, they're super uncomfortable no matter who they are. <laughs> but, but during that, that little window of opportunity where they're like, oh, what a nice hug, and right before they go, this is uncomfortable, there's this period of time where I could just become like this still pool of water, acknowledging my water crystal structure. I could become that still pool and just sense them. And immediately my body picks up on where they're carrying stress, where they're carrying fear, where they're carrying, you know, something that needs to be cleared. Mm. And then I would walk back in, into the exam room with them and listen to their human narrative for a few minutes. And then I would Try to find that opportunity to say, thank you so much for sharing all that intense journey you've had. You've seen 422 doctors in 15 years and this diagnosis nobody can figure out. But why don't we just lay down for a minute on the massage table? You lay down here and I'm going to just tune in at, at the top of your head. And I would put my fingers at that occiput where I was mentioning earlier. Put my fingers behind their head, hold their head, and and then just go silent with them. And that's probably the most nurtured that human being has ever been in their life because mm. nobody else has ever been just silent and present and witness to them and holding their head in that cradled state. And so I found this tool that is so simple, a big hug and then this silence at the head 
and then just use my body to feel what's going on in their body. My body, column water, it's just a big antenna. Mm. So tune in to, to each other. Mm. And so do this tonight. If you've got a friend or a relative or a loved one or a partner in the home, just invite them into a long hug and say, you know, I'm just going to become super still. And I just want to feel what it feels like to be in your presence. Mm. And so if you give them that little disclaimer, then it's less weird at 20 seconds. But you want to hug for that at least, you know, 30, 60 seconds kind of thing, because it's going to take you a long time to start letting go of your little idiosyncrasies and stressors in that hug. And so relax into that space. And the more you do this, the more you're going to realize that you are hyper intelligent. You, you have a clairvoyant capacity to understand stressors in other people around you. Mm. And you can get better and better at letting go of your own stressors because you'll identify those in that few seconds in the first beginning of the hug where you're like, oh, my low back. Okay, what am I stressed about? Let it go. Mm. Start dialing it down until you can become still. And then once you're feeling that stillness, man, you become so present. And we'd get up off that massage table and sit back down and I would start telling them things about their body and about my experience with their body. And they would just be bawling because Mm. they were hearing truth about themselves and they didn't have to speak anything. They didn't have to go process it with a psychotherapist. It was simply just a, a, a situation and an invitation. To, do you want to let go of whatever's in your low back? Do you want to let go of whatever's in, in your right calf? Because that's where I was feeling stress. You know, whatever it is. And the speed at which we could make therapeutic, you know, grounds in that space was so exciting. And I think that's ultimately the medicine of the future is becoming present with one another. And Doctor, I think you I gave me a, a nice spiritual explanation for what I go through when I hug Ryan. I thought it was just his muscles, <laughs> but it's his infinite essence that I, I like it. rubbing up against. Yeah. And it is funny when you hug someone, like you learn so much about them and like you do pick up on them. Like when I hug yeah. you, Zach, I'm like, oh man, like this, this man right here can hold space for people like no one else. And and it's, I've only, it was through a hug. I mean, um, so I know what you're saying about these like guttural hair standing up, visceral feelings where you're like, you just get this truth that you can't deny it. Yeah. I just want to speak to Susan really quickly here just about this moment. Did this moment get away? Did I overlook this experience I was supposed to have? What I get out of what Dr. Bush said is there's a distinction between moments and seasons. A moment is something that can happen in an instant. A season is something that's only recognizable over a sustained period of time. We can all pull out our calendars and look and see that the first day of spring is on a very specific day. But you can go look out the window Mm -hmm. and still see snow. And it's not until you've given it maybe a few weeks that you begin to hear the birds chirping and you see the evidence of spring and you say, ah, yes, I am here in this reality. But it's not noticeable always on that first day that we attribute to some moment. And when it comes to death, what I would say to you, Susan, is rather than trying to pinpoint the exact moment at which my mother departed, I would ask myself, how can I hold on to the living memory of her and the impact that she had on my soul while she was here? And as you give it time holding on to that memory, you'll begin to notice the seeds of life flowering into fruition in everything that you are, everything that you think, everything that you do. Mm, That's beautiful. Susan, thank you so much for your question. Our next question is from Theo in France. My name is Theo. I am a Patreon subscriber from France. Thanks to my parents, I had the chance to study in Santa Monica, California for three years. It was such an amazing experience. Being with myself in a foreign country for a while really helped me 
to figure out who I am and what I want to do with my life. Sadly, my dad passed away a few months after I came back home. It's been four years already and I feel like it happened yesterday. I haven't accepted completely that he's gone. I have a lot of regrets about being away for such a long time and not spend this time with him. There are so many things that I wish I had said to him. Do you have any advice on how to move on with my life? How can I let go of these regrets? I think Theo's touching on something that most of us deal with at some point. My mother died. It was the whole start of this minimalist thing. I was with Ryan when my mother died, and I was uh, 28 at the time. And I was actually in the car with Ryan when I got the phone call. I was flying down to Florida. He was, I was literally on terminal drive in Dayton, Ohio, when I got this phone call. And I think some of the greatest regrets in my life at one point were not spending more time or hear all the things I should have done or could have done. I wish I would have done. And that's where Theo is right now. And it's really hard to move on if you haven't let go of that. I um, recently started reading a book by B.J. Miller and Shoshana Beyer, uh, Beginner's Guide to the End. Mm-hmm. And in there, they interview a palliative care physician named um, Dr. Ira Bylock. And he talks about the four things that he encourages people to say with some to someone when that person is dying, or even if they have died, say it to that person. And these four things really helped me out. The first thing was, please forgive me for my indiscretions, you know, for the things, for the ways that I've wronged you intentionally, unintentionally, please forgive me. Second thing is, I forgive you. And how powerful is that, right? That's part of the letting go. Please forgive me. I forgive you. The next thing was, thank you. Just simply thank you. Thank you for being you, for being in my life, for being this expression of love and joy for this period of time that we've had together. And the fourth fourth thing is, I love you. And expressing those things has helped me let go, not just of my mother and her previous form, but let go of the clinging uh, to, I wish I would have done things differently. If I just would have done X, Y, and Z, then things would have been perfect or better or whatever, right? The fifth thing he talked about that he's learned after um, dealing with a lot of dying people is he said, I've even dealt with 60, 70-year-old men. And the one thing they can't get over is their father never said, I'm proud of you. Mm. And holding on to that, I wish my father would have just said, I'm proud of you. So if you're a a father or mother or caregiver listening to this, maybe telling your son or daughter right now that, hey, I'm proud of you. That way it doesn't haunt them the the rest of their lives. Zach, what do you have to say about this Mm. question from Theo? Great stuff. Um, yeah, that, that's the hope and a prayer that you just outlined in those four steps. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, thank you. I love you. You know, and those those four steps of this ancient Hawaiian prayer have been used for millennia to resolve wars and to resolve conflict at the you know kind of superstructure of as well as in relationship and within the individual. And I think it's down at that individual level that the prayer becomes most powerful. When was the last time you said, I am sorry to yourself, to your soul, for having put so many other things in front of yourself? You so, I have so disregarded my own sacred soul, the infinite within me, by 
building a whole metric of success or a metric of value in myself and putting everything else before my own soul, my own connection to that soul. And so that Ho'opono prayer is so powerful to begin at yourself. And then I think you get to tell your loved one who's dying a more clean version of that because ultimately most of the crap that we're going to ask for forgiveness or forgive is actually within ourselves and not our relationship to that person. We've we've projected so much on that relationship of our internal journey that we are refusing to understand as our own. And so in these relationships of family, family is such a challenging landscape emotionally, right? We all have challenges of communication and uh, how do you stay for decades with this group of people that are your family when you're on extraordinarily different pathways? So what does that look like and all this? And so forgiving yourself, beginning in that, I am sorry, I I forgive you, thank you, and I love you to self and just stay in the joy that comes out of that for a minute and then take it to your loved one and say, wow, I just experienced this inside myself. I have freedom within myself right now and I want to, I want you to feel my freedom when I say, please forgive me or I forgive you. I want you to feel my freedom in my exchange of that. And when I say thank you and I love you, I want you to feel the sincerity, the vibration because I did the work inside first. And so uh, death can be one of these things where we are thrust into these deep communications. But if we don't begin at self, we maybe miss this, this little opportunity that we have to clear the slate internally and then move into this exchange of wit- being witness to somebody who's just on that veil and crossing and back and forth across the veil. What a powerful moment to say, I remember everything. I know. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I forgive you. But know as you go into the infinite that I am here and I love you and I love myself and I am free. And the vibration that's set up across the quantum space at that point, you know, resolves any need for the psychotherapy and all the hundreds of hours on the couch because it's a true letting go. It's the, the true dumping of that water crystal, crystal you were asking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so that hope on a prayer is a super powerful one there. But in regards to his question of, you know, I don't feel like I can let go of my father, there's a a deep misperception that we are actually separate from father, you know? And so this is where the clinging can become its own problem. By clinging to the memory of your father, you're not allowing your father to express itself within you. You have father within you. You have mother. You may not have even known your father in this lifetime. And father is within you. There's a whole line of patriarchy in your past. There's a whole line of matriarchy in your past. And it is expressing itself. And now that we know about genetics, it's, it's so literal. It's so literal. What we have here in our bodies is an incredible data bank of the memory of everything. And genetics is, is constantly updating itself to experience the now and put it into the genetic record. And so it's a beautiful journey as a biologic being of remembrance at, that, at the atomic level, really, down within you. And so your father is within you. And by letting go of the construct of the memory and letting it be the reality, let go of, of remembering and become it, become your father, become that energetic you know, translation of your father within you. And you're going to meet your father in a whole new way because it's going to start acting through you. It's not going to be a memory of the past. It's going to be an active, present moment experience of father. And that's that's going to really be an incredible way to honor your father and to experience the father within you. Mm. 
you know, one thing I would say is that connection is about intimacy, not information exchange. You know, uh, information exchange is when I share facts about me to you, you share facts about you to me, and we both have, you know, the proper amount of intellectual data. But intimacy is when we are at peace with one another or in harmony with one another in a special way. And whenever we're seeking connection with people, it's not about the information. And we can know this to be true because there are moments where we have loved ones and we know that something's wrong. We know that they're in trouble. We know that they're struggling and we want them to tell us and they don't tell us. We already got the information. Mm. We're looking for something deeper. And it's not until they open up their hearts and they voluntarily tell us, I'm in trouble. I need help that we feel that connection because it's something deeper than information. And I say that to you, Theo, because you may have missed the opportunity to sit down in this nexus of space and time to have an information exchange with your father, but you have not missed out on the opportunity to cultivate that connection that you seek because the connection that you seek with others is an extension of the connection that you have with yourself. And that is a conversation that you can still have. I would recommend that you sit down as if your father were there. Go alone in a room where you can't be self-conscious, no one else is there, and say everything you would have said to him as if he were right there because it's not about the information. It's about the intimacy and connection you want to feel that will come from processing those thoughts and feelings in the way that can only come about through heartfelt conversation. Mm. I, wow. think you, I think you have the wrong guest on. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. TK always does they this to us. Oh, poet philosopher in the they're room. Like, they're at man. home, like standing ovation for yeah, TK. No, man, come on, stop me, stop it. Rocking that thing. One <sighs> thing that you triggered in me in in that information versus intimacy is what fear of death has done to our consumer energy towards death, and mm. we've cre created this whole new industry that's now being referred to as biohacking. And biohacking is like this, this journey into the most intense data stream that you've ever wanted. So much information, you can't even believe it. It's overwhelming. And it's overwhelming, and it's stressful. You know, the more you know about yourself and your problems, the more more there is to worry about. The aura ring cracks me up. Like, after a decade of listening to my patients bring in these spreadsheets of their sleep, I'm like, so we've spat in the last 30 minutes observing your anxiety about your data around your sleep. <laughs> and we've done absolutely nothing to get at what may be at the root of the reason you're not sleeping. And so we've lost the intimacy of being in connected to our infinite selves for mm -hmm. our pursuit of the information. And I think we've done this in Western medicine in spades, another CT scan, another blood lab, another this. And like, oh my God, sodium's 132 today. Like, as if this is a description of vitality in any shape or form. Yeah, like, yeah. Sodium, yeah, it's just truly mind-boggling how we are so reductionist in the deluge of data as Western medicine yeah. doctors. And I did this endlessly. I was wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning so I could get to the hospital so I could check all of my patients' labs before I would look at them. Mm. Before I would see wow. them. I would spend two hours learning my patient's conditions mm. before I went in and said hello. You're mm. examining spreadsheets, not people. Not people. Mm. Not people. And so my efficacy as a physician in that setting was so low. And they felt nothing from me when I walked into the room and said, your sodium's 132 today. We think we can probably discharge you in two days because the sodium is improving. Mm. And yet they feel more weak 
they have more edema, they have more pain, they feel more hopelessness and depression than they did two days ago. And the doctor's walking in saying, yeah, discharge two days, your sodium's looking good. The disconnect between their experience in that hospital bed and my effort to project a, an optimistic discharge plan, it's just like there's just no energetic mm. vibration that can make that connection. So that person ends up feeling unseen, unheard, unwitnessed in their journey into a biologic crisis, which might be leading them towards death. And so I'm excited about your your word, information versus intimacy. Instead of pursuing all of the information of your health or lack thereof, get intimate with mm. yourself. Yeah. Get intimate with mm. that infinite nature within you. And you're going to find a vitality that that was being elusive in your in your aura ring data. In Alabama, let's move on to some social media questions. You can follow the minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the minimalists. We'll put a link to all of Zach Bush's handles in the show notes as well. Make sure you follow him on social media. Our first question from Facebook is from Solomon. Death makes me think about what I want to leave behind when I go. How can we honor and enjoy our lives while making sure we won't burden our loved ones with our stuff later? Now, Zach, it is true that your coffin does not come equipped with a hitch for a U-Haul. <laughs> oh my, patent pending. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 yet we live our lives like um like it does. There's a book that came out maybe three or four years ago called the Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. I'm sure some of you have heard of Swedish Death Cleaning, but it is essentially preparing your stuff for your death in a way. Or actually, a better way is preparing to not burden the people in your life with this excess stuff. This whole thing with when minimalism started for me and Ryan, I had to go down to Florida to deal with my mom's stuff. I'd been down there a bunch of times while she was going through chemo and radiation, which... By the way, talk about prolonging suffering. I mean, it was one of the worst things that she could have done. She had stage four cancer, eventually reached her brain, and they were just trying to prolong a life in which she would suffer more at some point. And uh, with this tiny sliver of hope that maybe I'll, you know, survive this or, or whatever it was, right? But then the last time I went down there, it was to deal with her stuff. And the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And I found this out firsthand in my mom's tiny one-bedroom apartment. And she it's not like she was a conventional hoarder. She just had a lot of stuff. She had 65 years worth of accumulations. And so the big antique furniture and the big bed here and the cups and plates and bowls and her towel closet and the makeup chest and all of these different things that we accumulate over time. And we don't think about, okay, I'm not using these things, but we hold on to it just in case. Three most dangerous words in the English language. And then what happens? Eventually, when we die, someone else now has to deal with those things. And it's really difficult. It's the hardest thing to do is like, this person just left, and now everything has some sort of, it's infused with this sentimental value, or at least we think it is. It's the story we tell ourselves. Oh, I better hold on to this. This is precious. This is precious. This is precious. But of course, if everything's precious, nothing is precious. And I started letting go of my mom's stuff, realizing that I could let go of it because the memories aren't in the things. The memories are inside us. Mm -hmm. And so I could let go of the things and still maintain the memories of my mother. Now, Zach, I've heard you say this, and you've alluded to it here. 
I'm just really fascinated by this, that the memories that we have are in the water, in our cells. And I've never heard anyone really talk about that. Maybe you could clarify that a bit for mm-hmm. us. I point out that if you're a pharaoh, you do get to have the U-Haul hitch. And you, <laughs> you get to bring it all. You can bring it all down in that sarcophagus. And like, this is, this or we can start beautiful. burying people in storage pots. Yeah, I think that's actually the simplest approach, obviously, for the, dealing with the stuff left behind. Zach and I are starting business. Yeah, we all yeah, need a pyramid. Yeah, yeah, U-Haul bearing. Yeah, yeah. For, forget about the coffin. We're just going to go with the 60-foot U-Haul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's... Um, the stuff that we accumulate is, you know, symptomatic of a life lived in in, a, in the finite reality, you know. Mm. And so we have this opportunity, I think, to, when you're writing your living will, start to look at the way you're living and see if you're, you are alive. You know, just do mm. a quick check-in. Like, am I actually here? Mm. Because if you're writing, a, if you've got 72 pages in your living will of stuff and where it needs to go, you can just kind of ponder perhaps like, wow, do I... A, do I want my my loved ones to deal with that when I'm done? And B, do I want to deal with that for the next 50 years, you know? Yeah. And so I think there's this huge opportunity to live ready to die. And I love that so much that it's like my my massive transformative purpose. I am the storm. I'm ready to die again today. Mm. I love the energetics of being vital. I love the energy of being alive. I love the way in which being alive is so ethereal like like a storm is. And yet I love that it's only in letting go of everything that you've experienced today that you get to keep living. Because the moment you make today the thing, tomorrow is going to be heavier. And so this willingness to die to yourself and to everything you experience today on the pillow every night is a very powerful tool towards joy. And I have to, I've been on a 12-year journey of just extreme deconstruction of stuff around me. You know, my relationship, expectations on self as a father, as a husband, as this or that, you know, letting all of these, these roles go to be more and more the expression of me. And in that, it's just been this, you know, journey of starting to feel joyful at a level that I didn't know was possible for the first, you know, 45 years. And so in these last five years, just starting to feel alive and starting to think, you know, in these next 50 years, if I'm willing to die every night on that pillow and wake up fresher and more clear from the burden of the water crystals that we'll go into in a minute, I'm going to be vibrationally ecstatic. And that's ultimately the description that I would say is what does it mean to be alive? It means that you are capable of being vibrationally ecstatic. And that ecstasy can take on incredible stillness. It's not like ecstatic, like bouncing around, like, I'm so happy. I'm the happiest person in the room. I'm going to go shake everybody until they're happy. (laughs) It's more this sense of vibrational presence and for me i like what harkens to mind is the the sound of a blue whale in the ocean these long deep vibrations that actually can travel the circumference of the earth five times a single call of a blue whale five times around the circumference of the oceans and so that's what it feels like to be vibrationally ecstatic is it could be heard five times around the world because you are so clean in your vibration and so pure in that essence. But to do it, you're going to have to let go and let go and let go and let go. And so are you ready to die again? So let's go into the water structure that you asked about. 
A storm is so cool to me, and I love it as a sense of identity because uh, ultimately a storm is nothing, right? It's it's not the rain. It's not the wind. That wind is wind. The rain is rain. It's not the hail. It's not the lightning because lightning is lightning. So what the hell mm. is the storm? Mm. The storm is this center point that, like a conductor in an orchestra, spins these energies to play a symphonic expression of beauty. And that beauty is destructive to anything that was before so that it can create such a fresh canvas for this morning's dawn and the smell of wet earth and the feeling of fresh breeze on your skin when it's been cleansed through the rain. The storm is nothing, but it creates everything. And that's what I think it means to be living. Are you capable of being nothing so that you can take the beauty of the essence of everything around you and spin it into such a vibrational experience that it would erase the past and you would be only present in the beauty today. That's an exciting way to live life. Are you willing to be nothing so that you can be witness to everything? And in being witness to everything, you start to do this vibrational thing. So what is the water crystal we were talking about? So we're, we're taught that there's three phases of water. There's, it's not true. There's actually five phases of water. But we're told there's solids, which is, comes in the form of ice, and there's liquid, and then there's this gas, which we call steam. Turns out that's an incredible fallacy. Ice is no more solid than really anything else. It's just a liquid at a very low temperature, and so it has a crystalline structure to it, but it's always in motion. You know, and it's always in relationship to the gaseous state of, of its essence. And so if you've left an ice cube tray in the freezer for a long time, you see those ice cubes disappear. That's right. Well, well that's not a solid. It's, it's literally disappearing. How, where's it going if it's a solid? No, it's actually a liquid at a very low temperature that's capable of transitioning straight to the gas phase of water. Gas phase is not steam. There's no steam coming off your frozen ice tray. So what the hell is happening between the ice that's shrinking and the, wherever it went is the true gas phase of water. The gas phase of water is, is still H2O in its stoichiometric relationships, meaning two hydrogen for every oxygen. But it's never H2O connected, and neither is the liquid in the glass, and neither is the the rain coming out of the cloud. It's always OH. It's always a relationship between one hydrogen and one oxygen, and then there's this ethereal other hydrogen, which is really just a proton at that point, that's dancing around the oxygen. And the oxygen is letting go of every hydrogen every millionth of a second and grabbing onto the other one. And in that moment that it lets go of one of the hydrogen, it keeps its electron. And in that moment, the hydrogen is actually a, a solo proton. Hydrogen is the first element on the periodic table. And so that means it has one proton, one neutron, one electron. That proton, when released from its electron, is in a perfect vibrational geometry. And the geometry of a proton, it turns out, is a 64 double tetrahedron. And a 64 double tetrahedron is the geometry of a black hole in the center of our galaxy, or in the center, in this case, of a proton. And so black holes have a very interesting property to them is that they pull light energy, i.e. electrons, into themselves, suck them through a vortex in this double torus shape, and then shoot them back out in the center in a plane called the event horizon. And so the disk of a galaxy that's spinning in this 
beautiful arching arms and everything else, that is the event horizon of that black hole. And what's doing is taking all of the light energy from its environment. Remember, light can be a particle or a wave at the same time. Good old Einstein again. Mm -hmm. Light can be a particle or a wave at the same time. What the black hole is doing is pulling all of the vibrational waveform of light out of the universe, out of the vacuum space, and then organizing it into physical matter, particle state. And now it's a star, and now it's a planet, and now it's this. And so a black hole is a translation of waveform potential into physical manifestation. And coming out of those black holes, in addition to the physical matter that we see, is all of this vibrational information. Stephen Hawkins was the guy who kind of first described these in detail. So we call them Hawkins particles. The Hawkins particles are pouring out of the black holes within the universe. And it turns out that any 64 double tetrahedron is doing the same thing. And so mm. information is flowing out of black holes. Yes, particle state, but also all these Hawkins particles, which are information. And so in the end, what's happening is the black holes are now all interconnected by wormholes, which is a further science of, of the quantum world. And so our astrophysicists have proved all the wormholes are connecting all the black holes and all the black holes are connected. And so imagine now a data bank of all things that have ever happened being pulled out of the light energy, translated into physical state and expressing the universe that we can see. The black hole is literally the way in which memory occurs. And so what is God? What is this thing that's so intelligent that it can express the, the uniform nature of a syntropic, opposite of entropy is syntropy, a syntropic organizing universe that manifests beauty. What the hell is that thing? Why? And so we create religions to talk about God and everything else. I don't know if God is a thing or not, but I know that its geometry must be a 64-double tetrahedron because that is, the, that is the creative force and it is the memory bank of all things. And so the, how does a proton interact with human biology such that we would have memory. We haven't found a memory bank in the, in the brain. There is no hard drive in the brain. We have RAM, this short-term memory axis that then gets translated into long-term memory, but we haven't found the ROM. We haven't found the long-term memory bank. It's not neurologic. It's stored somewhere else. The only place that it could be stored ultimately is in a proton. And the thing that happens in biology that allows protons to occur in the perfect form of a black hole is hydrogen. And where is hydrogen stored in biology on our planet? Water. And so in a bizarre way, you are a column of black holes. That's what I always that are... said about him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> it was, dating life was difficult. I love was... That. No, that's great, man. That is awesome. <laughs> you, you know what's funny, Zach, is when... Whenever I get like a really great massage from my wife, I, it, it almost like teleports me into a, a memory of a specific location I have no control over. All of a sudden, I'm downtown Middletown, Ohio. And it's like, how did I get here? Hell. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't bode well. Or Keep fearing death. <laughs> It'll put me somewhere where I'm like, oh, I'm back in my elementary school just for a moment. And it's almost like this memory is being... Purgatory. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's some Sorry. memory that's being unlocked mm. in, in this moment. It is. And I don't know... I've never known how to explain it. The The phrase I've used, I heard someone say this once, was time piercing. It almost feels mm. like I'm time traveling 
but in a way that it's been released. Like I've been put there in the moment. I'm laying there with my eyes closed and my wife's massaging the base of my skull or my calf that hurts. And all of a sudden I am finding myself in Billings, Montana Mm, at the cowboy ranch somewhere. I have no, I, I know I've been there. I didn't even know I had that memory until all of a sudden it's been unlocked. Uh, I would ask you, maybe you can even access the information now, but next time it happens, definitely do this, is acknowledge the place, but then feel for the emotion. Mm. Because what she's releasing is not the place, she's releasing the emotion that was tied to that place. That's beautiful. That's what you're remembering. That's what happens with music, right? Yeah. Some music, just like some songs take us to a place that we didn't even know we had in ourselves. In both, you're getting a massage, right? And so the music vibration versus the manual, you know, massage of a hand on your back, both are doing a vibrational discharge, a vibrational release of information that had been stored in that in that space. Whoa. And you're going to find that, you know, there's a huge relationship between music and biology, for example, um, especially any music that's tuned to a spiritual expression. So Dr. Blackall, she won the Nobel Prize for discovering telomerase, which is the enzyme that builds telomeres on the end of our DNA strands so that when we reproduce a cell, it, we don't lose genetic material. Mm-hmm. So the telomeres are the kind of the, the bumper blocks on reproductive capacity without loss of genetic information. Super important discovery in biology wins the Nobel Prize that that telomeres can get longer. Because we thought that when they were first discovered in the 1980s, we thought, well, this must be the biologic clock. Like once you run out of telomeres, you die. Right. And then she discovers telomerase, which is an enzyme that builds telomeres. And she's like, oh my gosh, we actually have a machine to make our genetic reproductivity infinite. That's incredible. Mm. And so she started getting employed by all these pharmaceutical companies to find drugs that would turn on telomerase to give us this kind of biologic effervescence. And in the end, she's been traveling around for the last decade lecturing on this, is that the only thing that she's found that uniformly turns on telomerase is any form of spiritual song or chant from any religious background. Wow. Black Baptist Church all the way to your, you know, shaman in the mountains of Colombia, they all turn on telomerase. Wow. And so there's a beautiful message in there about our capacity to express the sacred. And when we express the sacred in whatever tongue, whatever cultural expression we want, if it takes the form of music, it will be biologically energizing. It will be biologically regenerative. Mm. It was St. Augustine who said, he who sings praises, uh, prays twice. So it's like, man, like that's the, I guess, the eternal life that chanting gives us. Yeah. Hey, can we all agree we got the right guest? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, right. Yes. Man. We got another Absolutely. question. Another question here from Melissa on Facebook. How do we give up our expectations around how the world works and what we wish we could change about it? Mm. So I'm reminded of this quote that I wrote down from Alan Watts. The more you try to rule things by force, the more you will stir up violence against you. And I know this as a person with OCD and a total control freak, and I'm constantly trying to fix the things around me. How abs- I mean, when you step back, you can realize how absurd it is, and I can laugh at that absurdity. Like, nothing is fixed. It's always ever-changing and moving, and as soon as I fix something, it will soon become unfixed. Mm. And so the desire to control is, in a way, almost like a, a violence against myself. Mm. Yeah, and I think that in some ways that violence is simply uh, 
a lack of acknowledgement of ourselves, you know, a lack of awareness of ourselves is the ultimate violence. As a finite being, the most violent thing you can do is deny your infinite nature. Mm. And uh, what you're seeing with that, you know, quote or with the question there from from social media, you're, you're hearing this question of what, how do I let go of my desire for the world to be different? You know, how do I let go of my desire to fix the world that I see as broken? And ultimately, the only thing that you're seeing when you look out at the world is a mirror to yourself. That's the only thing you can possibly be seeing because I'm seeing a completely different reality than you are. I guarantee you the things that are catching my attention today completely different than what you're catching into your attention. And so, yeah, I've got all these people running around saying, Zach, you know, what do you think about this threat of nuclear war? I don't even know what they're talking about because I haven't been watching the news this week and they all want to know my opinion. Like, my opinion is irrelevant to you because you're having an emotional experience to that information that we're at the brink of. My problem this week is I am still in, stuck in this little head game that I'm playing with myself as to whether an individual can be owned in love or released in love and what unconditional looks like. And I don't even know what the concept of nuclear war looks like. But, but man, my reality is just as fucked up as yours is. You know, like we're both at an existential endpoint right now. We're, this is annihilation. And so what, what you're seeing when you look out into the world is, and if you feel that desire for a different world, is you're feeling a, a desire for a different self. And so what you want to do is peel back from the world that you're frustrated with, turn off all of the narratives that you're responding to that make you feel like there's something to fix. Maybe that's politics. Maybe that's you know, threats of war. Maybe that's threats of a virus. Maybe that's whatever it is. Turn that stream off and then look within yourself to find out why you're actually feeling the thing that you're feeling that you're justifying by looking at the world because ultimately you're just looking for the world that's going to justify the way you feel right now. Mm, absolutely. It's interesting because like it's taken me a while to like differentiate between the way things are and the way I wish things were. And um, again, going back to the Jehovah's Witness thing, I was so stuck on how things should be that it was, um, it was torment. Like it was just putting myself through torment and I think it's okay to have an idea of how you want things to be, but getting there through the acceptance of what things are, I think that's, um, I don't know for me, that's been a easier path to kind of differentiate between those two. But, you know, you talk about nuclear war and when I think about nuclear war, um, yes, it's scary and you know, whatever, whatever conjures, but I can also look at it and be like, oh, like here's a point in time with humanity that I'm living in that it's going to play out however it plays out. And one thing I do internally kind of feel is like whatever path we take, like eventually it's going to work itself out some way. And uh, that it's almost, it's almost a way for me to not be scared about it and more or less just embrace like the reality of like, if it all comes down, like that's, it's okay. It'll be okay eventually. It's just, we have to go through this kind of, you know, this, the, these catastrophes and disasters to get to that other side. I don't know. I'm just trying to give Melissa here a perspective to kind of look at it, you know, through uh, instead of being tormented by the way you wish things were, you can kind of accept the way that they, the, the way things are. There's a cool quote that we use in uh, Farmers Footprint, which is our nonprofit that works around the, the topics of regenerative agriculture and food systems and our behavior as consumers and how we drive the current food system. And it's a quote that says that humans are not made of cells. Humans are made of stories. Mm. And I really love that 
quote because it, it it's definitely what shapes our sense of reality, and it's also what shapes our our disempowerment towards the reality that we want to create. And so whatever stories that you're hearing about the reality that you're living within, all it takes is a letting go of the narrative to mm. become a new creator. And so to become the storm today that will clean off the, the narratives of the past and to step into this fresh new earth that we want tomorrow is as simple as letting go of the stories we've been telling ourselves. I don't care if the story is about politics or science or medicine or you know, economics, just doesn't matter what the stories are. They all need to be let go of because they all come out of a fear of death. Mm. What your topic today is, is ultimately the original wound of humanity, which is a fear of death, which is to say we are afraid that this finite reality is what defines our reality. And in that fear, we feel abandoned by the infinite that we know is real. We can feel the infinite within us. And if we believe for a moment that the finite reality of this life, our five senses, is what creates our reality, then we feel like we've been abandoned by the infinite, been abandoned by ultimately God or whatever we refer to that infinite as. And in that, we develop this deep sense of abandonment disorder. An abandonment disorder sits at the very base of addiction behavior. Mm. And so we, as a species, have become addicted to anything that can dilute us or soften the pain or distract us from the reality that we believe we are separate from and therefore forgotten by the very nature within us. And so death is ultimately this playing ground of a test. It's like if we can do this within the body instead of waiting till we die to let go of our fear of everything, most of all death itself, then we will begin to live the original wound is a belief of separation from everything, from our nature, from our infinite. In that, we develop this deep sense of scarcity. And so we develop the colonial mind protected by an egoic mind. Mm -hmm. The colonial mind is out there to extract from everything around us until we have enough that we're reassured that we'll have enough for tomorrow. The egoic mind says that we're more important than everybody else, so we deserve to take away from everybody else so that we have enough for tomorrow. And so we have these two coping mechanisms that were necessary, the colonial mind and the egoic mind, to justify the behavior of a species that thinks itself separate from its infinite nature. Dr. Danny and I were talking before the show, <clears throat> Danny Unknown, a.k.a. Danny Unleashed, about how we all know that disempowering stories need to be rewritten and they can create problems. But sometimes that can happen with empowering stories. So for me, I, I've had a lot of jobs that I didn't like and I got really good really fast at telling myself empowering stories that allowed me to process things in a way that felt amazing. And I ended up having to go to the doctor once because I was having chest pains and, and heart issues. And the doctor said to me, you're stressed. And I go, no, I feel amazing. I'm enjoying my life. What do you mean I'm stressed? And the doctor said, stress isn't just an emotion. You can be a very positive person and feel great about your life, but stress is when you're pushing your body to do more than what is reasonable. And I had to start becoming very careful about my tendency to tell empowering stories that I sincerely believed and that benefited me psychologically. So sometimes you can, you can tell yourself a good story, but the story you need to be telling yourself is, hey, I'm taking a day off. Um, hey, I'm going to say no to that deal. So, so how do you find this balance between the ability to tell empowering stories about the things you don't like with the need to draw boundaries that protect your health? Because it's possible to do something that's unhealthy, even if you're feeling great about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think that ultimately, you know, those those stories, disempowering, empowering, um, in some ways, one filter to look through it is, is it a story of the past or, or the now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because no matter if it looks like a positive story or a negative story, if it's something that roots us in a nostalgic past, it's dangerous. And I would say that there's a powerful... Thing. This may or may not answer or respond to your question accurately, but I, I'm so struck by the beauty of this. This, this happened in my in my mind or knowingness a couple of days ago. Um, I, in the last ten years, my basic science laboratory has been studying very carefully the the effects of glyphosate, which is the most ubiquitous weed killer on the planet. We pour about two billion kilograms a year into our soils and water systems worldwide. So, two billion kilograms of this toxin end up in our biology. It's a water-soluble toxin, so anything with water pulls it in. Rivers, cell structure of plants, cell structures of an animal, human. Um, and so we are becoming glyphosate-ridden, and so we're, we're entangled with this poison. And the f- thing that it does is it lyses the gap junctions and tight junctions between our cells. The tight junctions create the, the healthy barriers or boundaries that create self-identity. And so the, as you consume food or water that has glyphosate in it, you start to lyse the tight junction, you start to lose the boundary that creates your sense of self at the biological level, and then you get autoimmune disorder, you get chronic inflammation because you're fighting everything that you breathe or taste or whatever, so you're in immune overload. And so the gap junctions sitting just deep to the tight junctions that create that boundary event are the fiber optic cables that allow light energy to transit from one cell to the next. And fiber optic cables are are the most powerful thing we have in the information technology world to exchange information. And that's what it's doing at the cellular level. And so uh, glyphosate becomes this potent, you know, chemical poison of connection. It's, It's destroying connection between human cells, which is ultimately what leads to cancer. Cancer is an isolated human cell. And so what's the macro version of that micro story? I think it gets at what you're talking about around these narratives is that the more altruistic the role that we take on sounds, I'm a mother, I'm a doctor, I'm a you know, volunteer, I'm a social worker, I'm a missionary. These things that sound super altruistic are actually the things that are likely to function as the glyphosate at the macro level. They actually cut the energy cord between you and self because the more altruistic the role, the more likely you're going to hold on to that external identity and therefore lose your connection to self at this. Because my soul is not a doctor. My, my soul has, is not human. It's, it's an, <laughs> my soul is expressing a human life right now. But I will lose track of my original math, the original vibration of what made me real right now if I'm holding so tightly onto I am a father, I am a good husband, I am a doctor, which is what I did for 40 years. And I clung to those things because I thought that was my self-worth. I thought that was my self-identity. And for that, I completely lost myself and I was depressed and suicidal. Mm. And so the more altruistic the title, the more viciously we'll cling to that role and for that, we will lose ourselves in the mix. And so the narratives that were told, the most empowering stories can make us feel good, but they may be separating us from our real selves, our real essence. I would love to get you back on the podcast to talk a lot about oh, yeah. autoimmune conditions. I, I have one, and we're not going to get into the details right now, but resulting in a lot of you know, environmental disruption 
we'll call it obviously glyphosate's played a huge role in that as well as a bunch of other things that potentially play, played a role we'll get to that next time you're here but ryan in the meantime what time is it you know what time it is it's time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages you can text your questions your comments to 937-202-4654 professor sean get your buzzer ready so during the lightning round, Zach, this is where we and our guests do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response, but not really. Sean puts a minute on the clock for us and we just maunder on a bit and he tweezes out something pithy to put in the show notes so people can share our minimal maxims on social media. You can find all of those minimal maxims in the show notes, theminimalists.com slash podcast. It looks like Jerry has a question for us. I am not suicidal, but I don't want to live to be 90 or 100. Medical aid in dying is only available to those who are terminally ill. So is there another legal and ethical option for me to choose when I'm ready to go? So I'm going to start this one off. If you want to throw 60 seconds on the clock for me, I'm actually going to steal a quote from Zach, and hopefully he can use some of my time to elaborate on it. I heard you say death is the ultimate upgrade. And that's when I knew I wanted to have you on the podcast. My wife introduced me to your work. And then I just thought I went down this rabbit hole and I heard because I went through a lot of these sort of health problems in my own life and was contemplating my own mortality. And then I heard you say death is the ultimate upgrade. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you're taking it from the finite to the infinite. You know, that's the ultimate upgrade is you are right now a finite particle expression of an infinite source, an infinite being. And uh, that finite reality is beautiful. And that's why we pick the finite journey is because we get to witness beauty in a unique way. What is the purpose of humanity to witness beauty through the five senses, through our experience of social connectivity? And so, so through this hyper-intelligence of a community, of society, and empowered by our five senses and, and our, uh, the, the analytical mind, we get to be witness to beauty on a level that just can't be done in the infinite realm. And so we choose a finite lifetime so that we can see the beauty of nature so that we can see the beauty of the fabric of reality. And then we will go into this upgraded state of vibration where we know all things. We have no perception of there's the coffee cup and the steam coming off it because you are the steam, you are the coffee, you are the thing because you are vibration. And so you're going to lose the temporal perspective as soon as you shift into this upgraded state of the infinite. I can't imagine in my finite being what it feels like to be infinite except that in these little parts where I become the storm or I become the one that will die on his pillow tonight, I get to feel this little little sound. It's a little vibration. Sounds like a tone almost in my beingness that is so child pure. It is so without expectation. <laughs> if you know Zach Bush, he's terrible at short answers. <laughs> I love uh, it. Yes, death is the ultimate upgrade. Ryan, let's. Uh, you got something pithy for us? Yeah, uh, my pithy answer is the experience of life cannot exist without the looming promise of death. And I have just recently been able to get to this place of not just appreciating my life, but appreciating the death that will come eventually. And I'm telling, I'm telling you, like when you can get to a place where you can say, thank you, life. Thank you, death. Thank you, life. Thank you, death. I fear death so little these days because I can appreciate both of those things. And what I'll say, you know, to, to this, this answer of, uh, or this question of, 
how do I off myself at 90 years old is appreciate the life you have. You have no idea how you're going to feel at 90. You have no idea. So just appreciate the life while you have it and find a way to appreciate the death that will come. We were talking about earlier today that life confers death, Mm -hmm. right? And understanding that enables us to accept both as, as though they are the same thing. Yeah. PK, you got anything pithy for us? Oh man. All right. I have here. Life and death are best taken one day at a time. I think if you try too hard to pre- make strong predictions about a future moment, you'll psych yourself out of the present moment, which is where all of your power, your wisdom, and your creativity is. But not only that, when you say something like, hey, I know for sure I don't want to be around when I'm 90, you're not only presupposing that you'll actually be in a position to make that choice, right? Like, Maybe you really want to do the 50s and 60s and the 70s, but not the 90s. Who says you get to do the 50s, 60s and 70s? So you not only presuppose that you have the power to make that choice, but you are also attaching yourself to an idea about the future that's based on someone who knows nothing about what it's like to be 90. Maybe you can be the person to reinvent people's understanding of how beautiful life at 90 can be. So for me, I would say instead of trying to figure out when I need to die, I would try to figure out how to live in such a way so that when I do die, the impact that I leave is inextinguishable. Mm-hmm. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream real quick. Alabama, is anyone asking some questions for Dr. Zach Bush while we have him here? Yes, we have a question from Ella. She said, my mom died a few weeks ago and she's given us a few signs that she is on the other side but I feel like I'm depressed even though I know only her physical body has died. Do people who believe in life after death grieve differently for their loved ones? <laughs> yeah, I would also just welcome you to let go of the concept of depression. Uh, it's an overused word, overused concept, and it's often supplants something much more real, which is in, uh, the word you did use, which is grief there. So you're experiencing grief right now, and there's many layers to it, and it's beautiful in the way in which grief unfolds in the physiology. And so I would invite you to feel everything that you are feeling without labeling it and and move into that sensation of what it feels like for your mother to transition out of the body. And regardless of your belief of what's happening on that other side, you experiencing the feelings and acknowledging them and then reflecting on what beauty your mother had in your life that would have triggered that emotion is your journey into a really free state with your mother's passing. Wow. Let's do one more from the live stream. We have another question from Kathy. How do I emotionally prepare myself for my father's death when we finally have a wonderful relationship again? Oh, wow. It sounds like that's one of those good problems, right? Because Ryan, I know that you've gone through quite a few issues with your father Mm -hmm. and imagine reconciling that just to know now you're going to lose the person. I think it's a you're struggling because, oh, I finally got the thing that I wanted. Kind of like us in the corporate world. You, When you get everything you thought you wanted just to realize that maybe everything you ever wanted, you can't simply hold on to. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the everything you ever wanted isn't actually what you wanted at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's ultimately the, the story there. It's uh, It's that thing that we started the podcast with is we hold on to fear and we hold on to love. You're experiencing love right now. You're trying to hold on to this thing uh, that you're experiencing with your father. And 
it's it's worthwhile to acknowledge that the vibration that you're feeling from your father is an infinite vibration. It is perhaps the fabric of of the reality that we live in, which is beauty when perceived creates the experience of love. You're seeing the beauty in your father right now, so you're having the experience of love. And so what I would encourage you to do is start to find your father in everything around you. Go to the park with your father, go out to dinner with your father, share a meal with your father. Find your father in the in the glass of wine or in the steak or in the vegetables, whatever he's eating. Find your father in the way in which he expresses himself within this finite reality and you'll start to see your father everywhere and you'll realize you're not actually in love with the person, you're in love with the beauty that you see in this person that is a finite expression of infinite beauty around you. And so the love that we experience with one another is truly unconditional. It is not conditional on how long they live or whether they're here with us in the body or not in the body. It is truly unconditional state of being witness to beauty. And so condition yourself to witness beauty and to recognize it quickly and acknowledge its sacredness, its sanctity, its vibrational force and the feeling of love that you get when you see the beauty and your, your father will become ever, ever present with you. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Zach Bush. Yes. Oh my goodness. Wow. I want to acknowledge you for the work that you do and say we're really grateful for having you here on the mm-hmm. podcast today. How can our listeners, there are many of them, how can they best support you in the work you're doing and find out more about you? Mm-hmm. You can best support me by letting go of all the narratives that make people say that what I, the future that I want to occur is impossible. We need to let go of all of those. So help me surrender all of the narratives in the public, uh, surrender our commitment to our stories of politics is impossible, social change is impossible, healing of social trauma and emotional trauma is impossible. Let go of the impossible and become possible with me for this future that we could share and, and manifest together. You can find me at my educational site, ZachBushMD.com. The Global Health Education Summit is a big deep dive on a lot of different topics. We have a two-hour panel on death and rebirth. That might be a continuation of this journey you've had today. Uh, I've got two death doulas on with that show. If you haven't heard of a death doula, it's an expert in in helping a family and a, and a loved one transition. And so um, get some insights there. We also have a neurosurgeon on there that talks about these near-death experiences and the perspectives of people when they're brain dead in the operating room and all of the things they witness and see in these brain dead states and come back to tell him about. And so uh, it's a powerful journey there. There's a bunch of other topics. We cover the virome and autoimmune stuff and autism and all kinds of different subjects there. So Global Health Education and the knowledge page is ZachBushMD.com. For our basic science work around the interface of soil and human health and the supplements that are designed uh, to embody this communication network of the biome, uh, it's IntelligenceOfNature.com. If you're really in need of a, a care team around you or a journey yourself into this freedom that we're talking about on how to become alive, we've got an eight week program called Journey of Intrinsic Health. Uh, that's at the, the same.com, journeyofintrinsichealth.com. It's an eight-week journey where you're paired with a coach or you can go through group coaching too, which is a very powerful way to be witness to transformation and others with you and as six or eight people go through this journey together. And uh, the journey is really finding you into your own freedom so that you can start to become that alive state, that vibrational state that we're expressing in this one. 
Uh, so you can keep looking for, for many other ones. You can follow me on social media if you want, but uh, I encourage you to, to really engage the websites because ultimately community is where we're at. Uh, Journey of Intrinsic Health actually has a, an app that we've created, a community app. And so there's ways in which uh, user groups are being spawned after the eight weeks. People are creating their own uh, user groups in communities and around special interests and things like that to create the future that we all want. We'll put links to everything you just talked about in the show notes. You can find all of those at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Malabama, we got a bunch more to talk about on the private podcast today. We're going to do a home tour. Ryan and I will argue about something, I'm sure. <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> You're going to have to speak about Ryan's death later. <laughs> no, we got a lot more to talk about. But Malabama, what do you got for us first? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, everyone. My name is Colleen, and I'm from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'm reflecting on the episode on kids stuff, and I thought that I would share a tip that has allowed me to keep my sanity as an expecting mother and having to be dressed every single day of my life. Um, About two years ago, I transitioned to a minimalist wardrobe that included six of the same black dress. But when I selected the dress, I had in the back of my mind that it would be nice if, since we were eventually going to be adding another child to the family, it would grow with me, so to speak. This ended up working out since, honestly, the style that I liked anyway fit the bill. Um, But with that said, I am now seven months pregnant and carrying larger than expected. Um, And these dresses still are my main wardrobe staple. I feel like that the maternity clothes money grab is something that we need to change. So this is my solution to that problem. I'm sure hoping that they continue to fit me um, for the last two months of my pregnancy, but I sure am happy to have made it um, to seven months and still able to wear the same dress. Um, But I find if I need something, then it'll be a very small calculated purchase um, and it'll be for a short amount of time. So I will donate those clothes once I'm, I'm finished, maybe to a women's shelter. This is Jenna and I live in Davenport, Iowa, and I have a listener tip for those with children who may be having sleep issues, just as my 11-year-old son has had, not just falling asleep, but also staying asleep. After exploring all the things medical, I started to look inward and realized that his sleeping environment was less than desirable. His bedroom was what I would describe as a pit. I had asked him to clean it up several times, but it seemed to be a task that had him overwhelmed to the point he couldn't even begin. One day last week, while he was at school, I organized everything in his room into three piles. Keep, donate, and the third, recycle and or trash. As his mom, I know him well enough to make those initial decisions, but I wanted to reinforce my respect for him and his boundaries as a young man. When he got home from school that day, he was tasked with going through the piles to make the final decision regarding each item. He now has one small magnetic closing box to keep paper items he wants to save. The box fits inside one small plastic bin where there are other small trinkets that are important to him at this stage in his life. Although I would choose to get rid of most of those things, I know that he puts sentimental value into things like that. But having a predetermined space puts a limit to what he can keep, and it is his responsibility to maintain that bin. We finished cleaning the rest of the room and making his bed, allowing him to choose two special stuffed animals to keep in bed and the rest of the beloved stuffies are now on a shelf near his bed where he can still see them. Stuffed animals are another non-negotiable for him and that's okay as long as the two toy in bed limit is followed. That night he stayed in bed 
and he did not come to me panicking and anxious to tell me that he couldn't sleep as he had so many nights before. The next morning when he woke up, he said that was the best sleep he has had in a long time. He said it felt so much easier to go to bed without all that stuff in his room. I'm not saying minimizing your children's bedrooms will make them sleep better, but I can certainly attest to the fact that my son's sleep issue dramatically changed that night, and he's now slept amazing every night since. I realize now that he had come to a point where his stuff had him overwhelmed without him really even knowing it. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Before we get into our simple living segments, let's read some more about less. As we get into this, we're going to still be talking about death a little bit. I got this article that Malabama printed out for me, and this is from yourtango.com. It's called 50 Best Alan Watts Quotes About Life and Death. We'll focus Mm. on some of the death ones. We're obviously not going to read all 50 for you, but we will talk about some of these death quotes. Before we get into these specific quotes, though, what did y'all think about Zach Bush? Dude, healing. Like I, I like when I was talking about the cuz he was talking about some very woo-woo-y stuff and I really only got out about 2% of what I kind of wanted to uh, try to understand more what he was talking about. I was going to say challenge him on, but it's not it's, it wasn't a challenge. It was more of a oh, help me understand more of what you're saying. Um but the way Can you give he, me an example? Yeah, so he kept talking about the soul and the soul for me as, you know, raised in, in Christianity was this thing that separates from the body. And uh, when it separates, it carries memories, it carries everything with it. And, you know, it may or may not go to heaven. It may or may not be resurrected back on earth. Um, but regardless, you're going to have all those memories. Um, the way that I kind of look at soul after I left, uh, you know, being one of Jehovah's Witnesses was more of like, if it did exist, it was an energy. It was something that maybe went back to a bigger ball of energy or something. Like, that's how I started to process it. But what I appreciate about what Zach was doing is he really helped me, I don't kind of understand these grandiose, infinite spiritual things in a way that I could do it without um, a book or a priest or a uh, a denomination Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Like, I... because. I felt like in order for me to get to this understanding or more of an understanding, I don't think we'll ever truly understand it, especially as humans, but um, I thought to get there, I'd have to choose a new religion. Okay, well, I look at the Buddhists and I'm like, well, here's why I don't like Buddhism. You look at Islam, well, here's why I don't like Islam. You look at Christianity, like, here's why I'm not going back to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very hard for me to get to these grandiose ideas. And Zach did a really good job, I feel like. I still have questions. Um, like I said, but, um, I just really appreciate how he talked about it in a way that kind of helped me, uh, see it in a different light. And I didn't feel like he was, you know, there was no dogma attached to what he was talking about. No, you're actually reminding me of one of the quotes from this article we're reviewing here. This is from Alan Watts. He said, your soul is not in your body. Your body is in your soul. Mm. And to me, as soon as you start having the idea that it's it has to do with energy and I'm existing within the energy. Something else that Alan Watts talks about is you didn't uh, come out of the earth. You, you are, uh, you, you sort of, it's not, not like you were born into the earth. You came out of the earth. Yeah. Right. And, 
and or you came out of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. You weren't born into the universe. Mm. And so when you look at the soul through that lens, as opposed to a religious lens, although many religious traditions, Catholicism being one, quite often look at the soul in, in that way, I think. TK, mm. do you have any insights around that? Yeah, but before I share, I just want to express my appreciation to you all for having someone on the show who talks about these kinds of things. So being someone who has grown up in a religious environment, I'm very familiar with the tendency that some people have to um, uh, hit the mute button on anybody that speaks from a point of view that is opposite theirs. The religious person who can't learn from an atheist. The religious person who says, I'm not going to listen to Sam Harris or Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, because these guys are atheists. And I've always defended the truth in those environments. Even as a religious person, I've always said all truth is God's truth. And you never want to lose your ability to learn from somebody Mm. just because they don't come from religion. And you guys illustrate the opposite, which is you never limit your ability to learn from people just because they do come from spirituality. Because I see both and I see it a lot. I see a lot of people who say, I'm not even going to listen to that guy because he's not quoting any scriptures, because he's not religious, and whatever doesn't come from God is wrong. And there are others who say, I'm not going to listen to that because it's woo-woo. And we treat ourselves as if we can't learn something from everyone. But as my cousin back in Chicago says, good game peeps all game. Got to be able to learn from everybody. And I appreciate y'all's ability to do that. Mm. You know, um, just playing around with ideas here, getting back to your question, I kind of see the soul and its relationship to the body as kind of like a radio or a boombox and its relationship to music, right? I see the soul as kind of like a broadcasting device or like a focal point that concentrates the energy. If you take a boombox and you open it up, you're not going to find the music in there. Where does the music exist? I mean, it, it's, it's energy. It exists in the airwaves, right? And it's all around us. But you need that boombox in order to be able to tune in to the frequency and in order to project it so that we can enjoy the music. And so if you're playing a beautiful song, and I come and I, and, I, and I take a hammer and I smash your phone or I smash your radio, the music stops, but the music doesn't die. Mm. It continues to live in the airwaves, but I've just destroyed that particular broadcasting device's ability to be able to connect to the music or for the music to be able to express itself through that. And that's how I see the soul. That's how mm. I see the intangible aspect of who we are, which is why when we die, in some very real sense, the music lives on, even though the broadcasting devices we become attached to, we become familiar with, we associate with that person mm-hmm. are no longer operational in the same way. Yeah. I feel like I got to throw this one thing in there about the being raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses and the soul. And Mahalik, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So they they actually differentiate soul from spirit. So um, soul, they will say, is actual flesh. So... Like this, like he's a good old soul. Mm -hmm. Like really what they're talking about is like, that's a good human being. Mm -hmm. And then they use the word uh, like spirit for that energy that makes the soul alive. I don't know why I felt like, I just know there's a Jehovah's Witness. Like I'm I'm imagining my dad listening to this, which I know he's not, but he would be like, son, you know, that's not how we talk about the soul. (laughs) Right, right, right. So anyway, yeah. 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 Yeah, and, And realizing that these words are often used Colloquial, colloquially, yes. they're used interchangeably. Absolutely, right? yeah, right. And and so I'm not. I don't want to get bogged down, obviously, in the definitions, sure. but the essence of what we're saying here. That's why I love this 
Alan Watts quote. To return to something TK said, we were at Sunday Symposium this weekend. We just had our last Sunday Symposium. It was really magical. What a great day with great questions. And that was awesome. Just uh, we did hugs before and after the event. <laughs> and and man, it was it was just really, really special being able to do that. But I remember beforehand, I gave TK a recommendation, not uh, telling him what to do, obviously. But he was asking, he goes, so why do you think wearing a polo is better than wearing a suit for this? Right. And I said, well, I don't believe in better. And because better is just like, that's all, you know, it, it presupposes that like, it is inherently better for everyone, right? And then we argued for two hours about the semantics of better <laughs> before I got my answer. Yeah, and he was like, my definition of better is better. <laughs> and what I'm saying is that better doesn't exist or it's perspectival, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I said, what we're really asking here is, why is the polo, in my view, more appropriate than the suit? Mm. And well, I broke out a couple examples for you. You want to talk about that? <laughs> what did he say? He said, well, there's Stephen Furtick and then there's Vody Bachman. <laughs> yeah. And so a yeah. Vody Bachman is a... Is it Bachman or Bachman? Yeah. Bachman. Okay. Yeah. Bachum. He, he's like... Uh, he's I hardly a, know him. <laughs> he's a preacher. Well, they're both preachers, right? And that, that was sort of my point. I've got to work on my vote, my Vody voice. That's, that's exactly go. it, right? Yeah. I'm somewhere in the region, but when Vody speaks, he speaks with authority. It doesn't really matter what position you take on the debate. You don't want to be opposite of him. Absolutely. <laughs> and he's very buttoned up, suit and tie. Mm. And it feels like what? You're in church because mm. you are, right? Yeah. And then with Stephen Furtick, it, he's a really cool pastor who like speaks really well. Also, it, Although he has like this deep lisp, if you've noticed, like, and he's able to be really charismatic, not despite the lisp, but it's almost part of his persona in a way. But he dresses in a way that is much more casual. And this is Christianese. This is major Christianese inside baseball, right? By the way, these are both two popular, like, Christian preacher speakers. Yes. And Vody is very sort of a fundamentalist Southern Baptist. And then I believe uh, he's reformed. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, and and then you have Stephen Furtick, who is sort of more the more evangelical yeah. megachurch pastor. And the reason that we're bringing this up has nothing to do with Christianity. Is you asked me this, and you were really impressed because I don't I, right. I don't conform to any of these sort of belief systems that they have. Right. What What about my willingness to dive into the people who have radically different beliefs from me impressed you? Because I'm accustomed to people having already turned off this show for the mere fact that we've even that we're even talking about two Christian speakers, right? Like the degree of tolerance that people tend to have for people whose views radically, radically differ from theirs, it's so strong. And I was impressed that you even know who these guys are and that you knew who they were well enough to be able to make that kind of comparison because you wouldn't be able to do that if you just saw pictures of them. Right. You, you had to have like listened to both of them for more than 10 minutes. And I, I was just impressed because I know that you don't think the way they do. I know where you disagree with them. And I'm like, whoa, dude, like, you know that? You know what I mean? It, it, it's like talking to a Christian who like, you know, has, has, has you know, read Darwin and can talk about it intelligently. It's like, whoa, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm impressed that you exposed yourself to something like that and endured the experience 
in a way that resists that tendency to be like, I, I can't take another page of this guy who is just saying stuff that I think is garbage or that is wrong. So I, I, I love the fact that you respect the space of, of, of ideas and dialogue so much that you take the time to study different people and appreciate what makes them great even if you think there are things about them that are worthy of criticism. I love that about you. There are certain things that I hate about Vody Bakum in particular, like his stance on gay people, gay marriage, um, but also some things about like the the creationist story in which we take a, you know, 6,000 year old earth and, and these types of things. And so I do find him still really compelling as a orator though. And so what I love doing is I love seeking out people who I disagree with radically because yeah, I can find, I go to Marie Kondo and read one of her books. Of course I agree with 99% of the things that Marie Kondo is talking about. We're the freaking minimalists, right? right? And we were doing minimalism before Marie Kondo ever came out. And so like, I understand that my bias there. And so of course I'm going to easy for me to gravitate, but if I can go to someone like Vody Bakum or even Stephen Furtick, who, whom I both disagree with on, on some Serious levels, not just minor disagreements, but I can figure out why are they so compelling? What about them makes them compelling? The way that they tell stories, or they, the way they interface with others, the way they debate someone, the way that they are fervent in their viewpoint. And then I can see what I dislike about them, the clinging to dogma and all these other things. And I find that it makes me a much better person when I start seeking out those different points of view. When I say much better person, I mean much more well-rounded. Uh, so I'm not just constantly going toward, you know, when I think about like Scientologists, for example, they're not even allowed to read criticism of Scientology. Mm. Well, well, that's weird. Sounds yeah. like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, okay. So, so similar, I assume you were in that boat. Well, it's interesting because like I, my dad just called me, which he hadn't called me in, I don't even know how many years, man, but he called me, uh, to talk about, you know, something specific. And, you know, of course, you know, the, um, the, the, the Bible comes up and, and Jehovah's Witnesses and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, he kept calling it the truth. Oh, the truth, which is funny because like total aside, um, one of the biggest signs of a cult is that they call their knowledge the truth. Yeah. Um, but when he called it the truth, I said, dad, let me ask you something, man. I was like, uh, do you agree the world is round? Is that a truth for you? He's like, well, yeah. I said, okay, cool. I said, there's so much information out there that really tries to disprove the world being round. Hmm. And I can go and look at all that information and all the critiques on it. But at the end of the day, I can decide for myself what is true and what is not true. The truth holds up to all criticism. And I was like, you know, the fact that you're not allowed to read anything outside of what the organization tells you, like, does that sound like a truth to you? And it was, it's almost like he has this mechanism where he can just deflect. Like he doesn't want to take in what I say. He just wants to like, present the next argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I yeah, the, the whole thing about not being able to explore other things. I mean, that's a, that's, that's crippling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it creates a lot of turmoil, I think. Cause when I was steeped in it, I knew there was something different, but not having the feeling of like, Oh, if I go outside this organization's literature, um, I'm going to be pleasing to Satan and I don't want to be pleasing to Satan, but I know I need to go outside of this literature. I mean, it's like this, um, it it was just torturous not being Mm -hmm. able to kind of explore. And, uh, I think that's, what's great about, you know, the, the, the way that we all work now is yeah. Like we're willing to explore anything and any ideas. And really the thing is, is like, I want to explore other people's ideas because I just want to connect with them, man. And like, that's what we all want. We all just want connection. We want to be accepted. 
we want to be loved, you know? Yeah. And like the only way that you can really truly, you know, look at someone and love them. I mean, I can look at someone and be like, oh, like we're, we're sharing a human experience. Like that's enough of a connection for me, let alone um, being able to be like, oh, I see where you're coming from on this viewpoint. Have you thought about coming from it this way? Right, right. And seeing those alternative viewpoints helps us better understand our own viewpoint. Now, sometimes mm-hmm. that viewpoint yeah. shifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or other times when I see someone like Vody Bakum, I can see how to be a great speaker without needing to hold on to the same dogmas that he yeah. has, right? I want to get back into this article real quick. So maybe we'll spend five more minutes on the article here because there are a few things that really stood out to me. I'm not going to read all 50 quotes to you, but the 11th quote in here was, oh, this got me thinking a lot this morning when I read it. When you die, the world spins madly on. The world is precisely the relationship between the world and its witnesses. And so if there are no eyes in this world, the sun doesn't make any light, nor do the stars. Mm. And so this got me thinking about the fallacy of wanting to leave a legacy and how absurd it is on a long enough timeline. Yes. I get it. Like we're recording these podcasts and if we were to die today or if we die when we're a hundred, they can live on for hundreds and hundreds of years potentially, right? Needing that is, I can't guarantee someone's going to listen to this a year from now, let alone a hundred years from now, right? It's, but on a long enough timeline, it will all be gone. It's like walking on the beach. I was walking on the beach this weekend. And if I needed those footprints to remain there, I'm forever going to be discontented because yes, I can walk somewhere on the beach where the waves aren't going to wash them away in five minutes, Mm. but they're going to be gone in five days Mm. or certainly in five years, right? But needing those footprints to be there. Well, my legacy is in those footprints. Well, what a metaphor, right? And so, yes, when you die, the world keeps on going. We see everyone who dies in in the, the media, right? Like I talked on the podcast a few weeks ago about one of my favorite musicians, uh, a battle rap artist named Pat Stay, whom was stabbed to death, breaking up a fight, which by the way, I've found out recently is one of the most dangerous things. But one of the easiest ways to die is to break up a, t- a fight between two strangers. Yeah. And because you, they often, it, because of that psychosis that's going on right there, what they will do sometimes is they will team up and attack the person who tried to break them up before then fighting each other again, right? Yeah. And what is that to say? Well, he has a legacy that will live on for many years and he has all of these things, but eventually that's going to go away as well. And it's all going to go away. There is no past. There is no future. There is only now. All the past that happened happened in the now. All the futures that will happen will also happen in the now. And so we're talking about eternity. We're not talking about living forever. We're talking about the eternal now. Eternity mm. simply means without time. And so if we want to live without time, if we want to live in eternity, for eternity, we simply want to live now. And doing things that focus us or ground us into the now. Ryan, earlier you mentioned mentioned meditation or there are different things you can do that ground you into the now. Writing does that for me. Mm. For some people, even playing video games. I think it's the reason the video games are so popular Mm. for folks is it grounds them in the now. It may do something that also any of these things can, by the way, that take you away from the real problems they're covering up. Alcohol does this as well. It Mm -hmm. puts you in the moment in a way that covers up the problems as opposed to actually 
finding a deeper understanding of some of those problems. Yeah. Let's read one or two more quotes here. Death should be a celebration of life. Dying should be one of the great events of life. Mm. I think that's some cultures do this, right? Absolutely. And I think that's what Zach does really well with respect to his work with hospice patients is celebrating life helping them be in the now Mm -hmm. as opposed to let's keep you alive to suffer longer. That's not what hospice care is about. In order to get put into hospice care, you have to have two doctors, you have to have two doctors agree that you likely have six months or less to live. And that's how you get into hospice. Mm. And hospice is no longer focused on prolonging life, but quality of life, not quantity of life. Health span versus lifespan. I think about the words of uh, Dr. Miles Monroe, who said that the grave or the cemetery is the richest place in the world because so many people go to the grave with their most valuable treasure still buried inside them. Books they never wrote, poems they never composed, dreams they never pursued. And his philosophy was die empty, die empty. Because when you die empty, you make your death a true celebration of your life. Mm, I love that, man. Isn't that beautiful? Because quite often we're focused on the emptiness that we have. We're trying to fill that emptiness Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, no, we're not empty. There's so much here that we can use to create, to contribute, to give, to live. Which brings me to the final quote in, well, it's not the final quote in here. But the, one of the, the final quotes I want to talk about here today, to be alive is to be awake. And what Alan Watts said is, Buddha is the man who woke up, who discovered who he really was. And so Alan Watts, he studied all these different world religions and, and traditions. Hinduism and Zen Buddhism were two of his favorites. And Catholicism was certainly another tradition that he found a lot of insights Uh, within. And the waking up is most of us are going through life asleep. That's why this term became popularized recently. And then it was bastardized to to be woke, right? To wake up Mm -hmm. simply means to not trust the narratives that we've been sold, the lines of thought we've been handed through media, culture, society, religion, etc. But to wake up to all of the nonsense. It's so funny because like, when I think of the word woke, I think of the social justice warriors. But then there's this term called pilled, which is the, like red pilled. Yeah. Black pilled, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Like red, like red pilled. Like, oh, like I woke, like, oh, they woke up from, they woke up from their dream or whatever it is. But it's funny how these are uh, pejoratives <laughs> now. Yeah. But each, it's funny because each side has this, uh, this word that's a pejorative that describes the other side hmm. uh, being woken up, essentially. Hmm. Yeah. Whereas, and then it becomes a cliche, right? Right. And we've turned these really profound moments of actual awakening. Mm-hmm. We were doing this at Sunday Symposium. I was doing the the Seekers reading at each Sunday Symposium, which, mm-hmm. which by the way, you can join us in Los Angeles, uh, sundaysymposium.com. We do it once a month where we're meeting in person, just 200 people and half the tickets are free. We During the Seekers reading, I was reading something about what what is spirituality really? This is something from Anthony DeMello. And he was talking about, well, the way that I look at it is it's, it's the most practical way of living. It's simply waking up. Mm. It's not piety. It's not religion. It's not bowing at an altar or whatever. You can do all of those things. But what he's really talking about 
is waking up from this moment that we actually don't want to wake up from. He said, the first thing you have to tell yourself is you don't want to wake up. You don't want to be happy. Mm -hmm. And then at the event, I went through this whole test with people to prove to them that they don't want to be happy. And it was really powerful. Had everyone close their eyes. And, and we talked about this, this, we think we want to be happy, but we only want to be conditionally happy. And you don't want to be unconditionally happy. As soon as you realize that if you did want to be unconditionally happy, then these other things in your life would change dramatically. Mm. Maybe the homeless people are the most unconditionally, the ones in the gutter on heroin because <laughs> they put nothing but themselves first and their pleasure, which is confused with happiness. Um, I guess I'm trying to demonstrate how you could have unconditional happiness, um, but there is a cost that is associated with it. Yeah, that. those people don't have unconditional happiness. No, right. That's, yeah, I know, that's I know. nonsense. Right, of course. Um, they have conditional pleasure, which is conditional on receiving more dopamine from the drug they're putting yes. into their body. Right. And you're absolutely right, Ryan. What we do is we conflate pleasure with happiness. Mm -hmm. And happiness has become, as Kapil Gupta talks about, he says that happiness doesn't exist. And why does he say that? If Anthony DeMello insists that it exists, because definitionally, they're talking about two different things. Mm -hmm. When we say happiness now, quite often we're saying pleasure. Oh, I ate that candy and I was so happy. I, yeah. I see that with my daughter. You know, She gets so happy from a stimuli. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about happiness here right. or spirituality or contentment or peace yeah. or tranquility or whatever you want to call it. We're talking about something different. And what I loved about what Zach Bush was talking about earlier is, oh yeah, the people who live in the moment mm -hmm. are often the people who are closest to death. Mm -hmm. When you, Ryan, had your near-death experience, TK, you had yours, I've had two near-death experiences, mm. I finally felt so much closer to life mm. than when I was just constantly pursuing mm. these little things for future bits of pleasure. Yeah. Hey, real quick, I like, Mar Mar I like Martin Seligman's categorization of the three levels of happiness. Um, where, where the first level is pleasure or immediate gratification, getting a massage, eating a candy bar. Uh, the second level is long-term fulfillment, what we usually associate with the rewards of discipline. Um, you, you develop a skill, you learn how to code, you learn how to play the piano, and you get this long-term uh, fulfillment. And then the last is eudaimonia or flow, where you are one with the music, right? And, and you have this sense of timelessness about life. And it reminds me of what Joseph Campbell said that we don't search for meaning. We search for the experience of being alive and flow or that ultimate state, if you will, that stateless state is that sensation of being in tune with our aliveness. It's not about where we're trying to go, but it's about being in touch with something that we don't feel the need to escape from, you know? What are some things that cause eudaimonia in, to appear within you guys? I can name three things for me. And it's funny because I often avoid these things. And that's why I wanted to bring this up. Hmm. Because the first thing is writing. Hmm. And I will write most days, but it's easy for me to find an excuse to not write. Even hmm. though that's the very thing that brings the focus, the creativity, that essence of living is writing for me. Two other things. One is sex. I, and you're really in the moment when you're doing sex the right way, right? It's like, there's nothing, nothing else. I'm not worrying about the, the water bill or, oh, did mm. I forget to turn the oven off or whatever. It's like, you're actually in the moment. And the third thing I, which I discovered recently is I don't go surfing, but I go swimming where all the people surf near, there's a beach near my house about 15 minutes from where I live. Mm. And I got one of those parking passes. I can just park there anytime. And so I, I go there almost every yeah. day. 
and I'll just get in the ocean for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And all of a sudden, there's nothing else going on in life. I'll be there by myself yeah. or I'll be there with my family, but it is just here and just now. And it is that incredible sense of eudaimonia. Mm. Is there anything that triggers that sense of eudaimonia in either one of you? Mm. Sex, snowboarding, sleep, connection. When I'm like connecting with someone, like mm. I just like hyper-focus almost to a fault sometimes. But um, like forming a deep connection with someone or like really trying to see someone or holding space for someone, that's probably... Like, like the hug line is my favorite thing, a, a part of what we do. Oh, it's so good. When we were doing the Sunday Symposium, we were doing the crowd roaming beforehand, right before we had Lee DeWise come up and play some music. What an honor that was. Oh, my to goodness, yeah. And um, he's uh, amazing. I was just going around hugging people, and they were so surprised to see us just going through the crowd. And that moment of connection, it didn't have to be 50 minutes. It could be 15 seconds. Right. Mm. And all of a sudden, you have that, moment that is right there in front of you and you're ac actually bearing witness to that moment yeah. what about you tk besides christmas music oh besides <laughs> christmas music and besides making love um which both of you both of you led with that real strongly so i was like okay i'm not i'm, I'm gonna come with it too uh, i have sex too guys <laughs> i have sex too guys I, I too find great delight in sexual activities <laughs> whatever <laughs> you know sweet so, that danny unknown <laughs> uh you know it, it's interesting you talked about how you know something gives you flow and yet it can be so difficult to kind of get in tune with it. It makes me think about something that Stephen Pressfield says in The War of Art. He says, the more connected some task is to your soul's calling, the more likely it is you will face great resistance in attempting to do it, you know? And so it, it can kind of become a barometer to let us know how important something is to us. The, the things that feel easiest for us to do paradoxically can be hardest for us to get into. But for me, I would say flow state, number one, taking a walk. Um, walking for me is like a mantra for the body. It quiets the mind and it's not about going somewhere. There's something about the activity of walking without a particular destination in mind. The only thing I have in mind when I'm walking is the story I'm going to tell the cops if they're like, hey, black man, where are you going? I'd be like, oh, I'm just going over there. Uh, but <laughs> Why you got to talk about race, man? I was going to say, way to bring Why race into this. Race? I know, because sometimes <laughs> race is funny. Um, <laughs> the second thing is uh, reading. Um, for me, Reading isn't about learning. It's about dancing with the author. Um, if, if someone came out with evidence that said reading makes you dumber, I would be in big trouble because that still wouldn't motivate me to stop reading. It is so fun to read. I lose myself so quickly in, the, in a book. I lose my sense of time. I lose the sense of measuring my life. And it's almost like locking horns, locking arms with that author and beginning to dance with them wherever they're taking me and just letting myself go, you know, as I ride the waves of their thinking, as I dance to the music of the story that they're talking about, the point they're philosophizing about. So that's a big one for me. And of course, mm. all things pertaining to sexuality. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say the podcast, <laughs> which is kind of like intellectual sex. <laughs> with my wife, with my wife. <laughs> mm. hey. <laughs> I love my wife. <laughs> Chance the rapper? <laughs>
That's become a meme. Uh, I'm so mad. Like whenever I uh, bring up like it, Chicago hip hop from the '90s, like TK has no reference, and it's so like just soul crushing to me because I was finally thought he's from Chicago. Oh, he's no. he's that, got to know. Why he got me on the team. Yeah, I'm uh-huh. like he's got to know about psychodrama and triple darkness and crucial conflict and EC and tracks to no one. He, he assumed that he knew all of these rap. Yeah, because he's from Chicago from the '90s. I don't know. It's kind of racist, Josh. He's from Chicago. (laughs) That's racist. I I need a button I can push that says, that's racist. (laughs) Ryan. (sighs) What's up, man? Are you saying he's black? (laughs) I didn't say anything. I thought he was Catholic. sounds like you said that. Hey, guys, see, this is the problem in America today. Having conversations that mention race. So please stop it. Please stop it. <laughs> people, isn't it funny how people get, people get so uh, uptight about these things? How could you start talking about race? I, you know, I didn't realize I was, I was white until I was like 31. And here's why. Because I grew up in a black neighborhood. And so I was terrified of the police. And I realized like, you might, you know, my brother who's, who's yeah. black. He, like we would get in trouble with the cops for the same things. Like yeah. th- for things we shouldn't be doing. He gets maced. Tased. <laughs> tased. Sorry, not maced. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I, he ma- may have been maced. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I just have never like, uh, oh man. And, and so yeah. it made me realize like, and so I remember once Ryan and I were driving through Kansas and uh, we were on tour and we get pulled over for going like 73 and a 70. It was, it was one mile over the speed limit. Okay. Yeah. 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 So we're going to mile over mm-hmm. and, and this is their whole game on, on 90 and 70, by the way, they, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we're on I 70. <laughs> no, but like, I'm like terrified. Right. And Ryan's like, why are you so scared right now? And the cop's like, hey, what, what's wrong? And I'm like, there's a cop right there. Right. And then I realized, like, oh, I have nothing to worry about here, mm. which is actually not true. I statistically, I do have <laughs> things to worry about as well. So the cop, the cop says, Hey, uh, I can either give you this ticket or search your car. <laughs> and, jo- and he pulls Josh out of the car, by the way. So then Josh comes back and he's like, Hey man, he gave me these two options. Um, he's going to go ahead and search our car. So Josh and I go stand over on the side of the highway and we're standing there and he starts like digging in our trunk, which by the way, when I, I would say give me the ticket, man. Like, yeah, me, I, too. But, me too. Yeah, so I can go to court and be like, hey, this a-hole gave me a ticket for you one mile what over. You're getting. And when right. they search your car, they tear it all apart. And then like, they're like, okay, have a nice day. Right. And like, then you have to put everything back together. But we're standing over there and he gets in our truck and Josh looks at me and he's like, hey man, is there anything I need to worry about in there? <laughs> 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 hey, hey, Josh. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make one quick point and I promise it'll be inspiring about race. And this is for everybody that feels like, man, but come on, TK, I just hate talking about this subject. This actually applies to any subject that you don't like talking about. If it's religion, if it's sex, here's the best piece of advice I can give to anyone who finds themselves tensing up or getting disturbed when a certain topic comes up. The best way to make a topic go away is to find a way to make that topic feel like play. If you can Mm. make it feel like play, it will either go away or it will adjust itself before it comes your way. What I mean by that is adopting a sense of levity about the things that easily bring you down makes your life a lot easier. And it also makes people less inclined to troll you or even bring those things up. But there's something about the fear of a conversation ever going somewhere 
that makes those kinds of conversations seek you out. So if you're like the type of person that's always like irked, like, oh, I just hate talking about race, you're probably like a magnet for all the people that need to be talking about race all the time. You're like a magnet for the people that make everything about race. But when you can say, hey, look, I don't care what it is. I know how to be comfortable in my own skin. Mm -hmm. I'm like the man who doesn't enjoy Paris, but who enjoys himself in Paris. I can enjoy myself anywhere in any conversation. So you go ahead and do what you got to do. You want to talk about religion? You want to talk about music? I'll opt out when I need to opt out, but I'm never going to let the topic that someone chooses to talk about disturb my happiness. And when that happens, it's like a magical, energetic transformation where people just either stop bringing stuff up or when they bring it up, you're able to dance with it in a lighthearted manner that just that doesn't characterize the person who just needs the conversations to go away. And nothing is off limits then. Nothing's off limits. You've, yeah. you've all of a sudden made this thing that is taboo, not taboo, because yeah. I'm willing to entertain it even if I disagree with you, even if I dislike you, even if I dis dislike the topic. I know yeah. I can opt out anytime, but I'm not making anything off limits because as yeah. soon as I renounce it, I'm now forever clinging to yeah. that thing that I've renounced. Yeah. Let's move on to some talkaboutables. Little segment we do where we talk about some current events or things that are happening in our lives that we want to discuss further. So when we were at the Sunday Symposium this last weekend, which by the way, you can join us, sundaysymposium.com. It's in Los Angeles once a month. I came up with this rule. Someone was asking a question about, hey, we're getting ready to move to Los Angeles and we've got all this stuff and Ryan was talking about, oh, we've got the minimalist rule book, 16 rules for living with less. You can implement some of these rules like the spontaneous combustion rule or the 90-90 rule, the seasonality rule, or the just-in-case rule or the just-for-win rule or the emergency items rule. We have 16 different rules in there. You can even play the 30-day minimalism game. You can download the free calendar on our website, theminimalists.com, and you can play this little friendly competition together. And I came up with this new rule recently. I call it the didn't-know rule. And here's how it goes. If you find something you didn't know you owned, you can give yourself permission to let go. And how mm. often does this happen? Because we have so many things. Every American has 300,000 items in their home on average. Of course, there are some things that you own. You, you forgot you owned it, right? Oh, I didn't even know I still had that. I didn't even know we ever had this. I didn't know we owned that. I didn't know we had this. I didn't know we had this. We find something in the attic. We find something in the basement. We find something in the garage or the storage locker or some box that's tucked away in the closet. Huh, I didn't know I owned that. Well, that's functionally like not owning it. And if I didn't know I owned something, that is the perfect time for me to give myself permission to let that thing go. Mm. Man, hey, that's so good. Wait, 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 say, say that, uh, say that pithy, pithy? Pithy, whatever you want to call it, TK. Say that, say that pithy, uh, thing you led with again. All right. So here's the pithy thing. Yeah. If you find something you didn't know you owned, you can give yourself permission to get rid of it. Hey, by the how do you not know you own something? Right. <laughs> He's yeah. talking about when you come across it and you're like, oh, I didn't even know I owned that thing. I know, but how do you get there? Because we accumulate things just in case. And we hold on to them just in case. And eventually we forget about those things because that in case never comes. And then eventually you come across it when you're moving and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot I bought that thing because I thought maybe one day I would want to wear that Speedo at the beach. <laughs> and, then, and then you're like, oh yeah, you know what? I, I totally forgot I even owned that Speedo. I, I can get rid of it. Now, TK, I think you should totally wear that Speedo. Especially the leopard print. It looks good on you, man. That is your color. Now, Ryan, you were... Um, 
Amnesia produced by Excess. So, <laughs> such an interesting... I love that band. <laughs> it's a Radiohead spinoff band. <laughs> and what you were talking about there is In Case Never Happens. So if In Case Never Happens, what happens? You have a thing that is just. Right. It's just sitting there. Right. It's just taking up space. It's just in the way. We have all of these things that we've amassed. Quite often, they're just given to us. Here, you have this, you have this. We get these free things, these tchotchkes. We buy something because it's on sale. And all of a sudden, I'm holding on to it. I'll just put it here. I'll tuck it away for later. I'll hold on to it just in case. And then we have hundreds of thousands thousands of just-in-case items in our home. And that's when we realized, I didn't even know I owned it. Or I didn't, I didn't know I still have that thing. Or maybe my wife brought something home and she's not thinking about it anymore. I've never given it much thought. And yeah. now it's just sitting there. And so if I didn't know I still own the item, I can give myself permission to let it go. I got a list here of 12 things that I own. I just love your listicles. That aren't very minimalist. <laughs> Man. And I, I would really call this the problem with duplicates, but it's not really a problem because I own these 12 things. I own two toothbrushes. We've talked about this when we did the house tour once. I, I showed you my junk drawer. And so I keep a toothbrush in my junk drawer, which is a very nicely organized junk drawer. In fact, we turned that into a YouTube video. You can find that over at uh, youtube.com slash the minimalist. So you tour my minimalist junk drawer and... When you see that junk drawer, there's a toothbrush in there. But of course, I have a toothbrush in my bathroom as well. Now, mm. why do I have that? It's a, there's a practical use for that. And so this is where minimalism comes in handy because minimalism isn't saying, well, I guess I should only have one thing. Otherwise, it's waste. Otherwise, it's stupid. Otherwise, it's wrong. Otherwise, it's not very minimalist of you. Well, I have a separate toothbrush in the kitchen because that's where I brush my teeth in the morning because I get up before my wife and I don't want to wake her up. And so if I'm brushing my teeth in the bedroom, which is right or the bathroom right next to our bed, it's a huge problem because it's going to wake her up most mornings. She's a fairly light sleeper. So I go out into the, the kitchen, I brush my teeth out there, and I have a second toothbrush in order to do that. And that way she is not disturbed by my incessant brushing. By the way, he's like the Floyd Mayweather of toothbrushes. I heard an interviewer ask Floyd, why do you have two girlfriends? And he says, because one is too close to none. <laughs> and that's, that's how Josh is. He's the Floyd Mayweather of toothbrushes. I just want to say, I keep completely different things in my drunk drawer. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we're talking about, right? It's all these little tiny bottles. <laughs> yeah. They're empty. <laughs> the drunk drawer turned into a junk drawer. Oh, I'm man. a one-woman man and a one-toothbrush Brusher. Mm. Mm. There you go. Minimalist. <laughs> Tweet that, Professor Sean. Tweet that. <laughs> so I own two tape measures. Mm. We talked about this with my junk drawer as well. I'll keep one in my junk drawer and one in this. Uh, yeah, we have a toolbox. So I don't know. Why do we have a toolbox? I don't ever a use A lot it. of measuring contests going on over yes, that household. Yes. <laughs> we have stuffed animal measuring contests. <laughs> Stuffies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were at Sunday Symposium and... Uh, she would not stop. She would, sorry, go. <laughs> oh, yeah, Sunday uh, Symposium. Yeah, we were there and uh, we were asking the crowd, like, what, um, what, what are some things you've sacrificed in order to make someone else happy? Yeah. And Ella yelled out, stuffies. And to be clear, she yelled it out about 16 times. Yeah. <laughs> did, did, did you make her give up a stuffy? <laughs> Uh, no, but we help her understand when she's not using them anymore mm -hmm. and when other kids can 
So what, really where she was going with that is like... You sound like, like the mafia. No, we helped her understand yeah. that she doesn't need it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, TK, let me help you understand why you're going to give that car to me. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. Mafia. <laughs> she, uh, and, uh, well, yeah, sure would be a, a terrible thing if something bad happened to that stuffy. <laughs> You know, right now is the opportunity for you to get to choose what happens to that stuffy. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Here are a few more things. I have uh, two tape, uh, two tape measures, two vehicles, two pairs of pants. <gasps> the reason I got two pairs of pants is I had one that I had to get hemmed, and so I didn't have a pair of pants to wear. Well, I got the other <laughs> pair hemmed, so I realized, like, huh. Maybe it makes sense for me to have a second pair of pants. Mm. <laughs> now, I'm not like my former self who had 30 or plus pairs of... Every time, I just buy more jeans. Mm. I don't even know why I was doing it. I just go to the store. Oh, this... I'm buying the same exact pair of the pair I had before, but I could just wear the other pair. Right. I have a functional use for the second pair now, right? But mm. I, I decided not to go beyond that. That was the, that was the boundary for me. Uh, I have two residences. Yeah, I live in a guest house. And my wife lives in our main house and occasionally we live together. So I guess that's not very minimalist of me because I could I could live without that separate garage that I live in half the time. And then uh, we have two bottles of lube in our house. No additional comment needed for that. Hey, man, somebody called you out in the comments one time. They were like, yeah, what's up with that wedding ring or whatever you got on your finger? It's like a ring. I was like, what's up with that ring you got on your finger? Is that minimalist? And I just always laugh when I see that. Like people think they gotcha. Mm, yeah. Gotcha moment. You own something. <laughs> minimalist. <laughs> gotcha. Oh, you're a minimalist, but you made a documentary. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> like minimalist means you can't ever have a thing. The, the worst thing is when Ryan and I are at the airport and someone will walk up to us and be like, oh, you have a bag? It's <laughs> not very minimalist of you. You get to travel with all that. I thought you would just travel with just the shirt on your back, if that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have a new segment here. We call it TK's Tweet of the Week. Oh my God, we got to work on that jingle. <laughs> Welcome to TK's Tweet of the Week. We'll work, now, on, it. We'll work on it, TK. <laughs> Ryan, I think, I think he was shadow banned recently. Oh, yeah, I shadow banned him. <laughs> you didn't know that? Like all the, all the social media platforms, they actually leave it up to me to shadow ban people. And he's the benevolent dictator. That's right. He's like he's like Singapore personified. <laughs> anyway, so this you sent me this tweet, a link to it. Thank God you took a screenshot of it, TK. So Voltaire had this quote. I'm going to let you read it here, but the tweet itself was actually taken down, so I can't put a link to it in the show Whose notes. Whose tweet was it? From Voltaire. Oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. So, okay. You want to talk about who Voltaire was? The the um, address is at Voltaire quote. And it's uh, Voltaire, writer and philosopher. And uh, the quote is, cherish those who seek the truth, but beware of those who find it. Yes. So good. Yes. So it reminded me of three that things, TK. So cherish those who seek the truth. Mm -hmm. So truth seekers, but beware of people who have it all figured out. I've got all the truth. I'm a truth miser and I yeah. will dole out this truth mm. to those who are deserve my bestowing of the truth. Mm. And it reminded me of this quote from Buddha. The day you follow someone, you cease to follow truth. So I think what Voltaire is saying here is 
someone finds the truth and you follow them because you think you're going to get the truth. But by following them, you actually cease to follow the truth, Mm -hmm. which brought me to an Anthony DeMello quote when he said, the guru cannot give you truth. Truth cannot be put into words, into a formula. That isn't reality, which made me think of anytime someone is giving you the truth through words, it's like if someone's telling you what Zen Buddhism is, it's inherently fraudulent in a way because you can't tell. The truth is not in the words. It's like when I say, this is a camera. It's like, well, it, that's the word we use to describe the thing that I'm pointing at, right? But it's not actually a camera. Camera is the word that describes the reality. And uh, it actually brings us further away from the truth. Anthony DeMello also said, yeah. as soon as you name a thing, you cease to see it. And I found that to be true. We do that with our kids all the time. We infect them with language. That is a tree and we stop seeing the trees because it allows Ooh. us to dismiss it. That is a bird. I dismiss the bird. That is a giraffe. That is a puppy, whatever it is, as opposed to seeing it for what it actually is. As soon as we name the thing, we tend to dismiss it and move on. Mm. Ooh, I love that. What, you know, when I, when I think about love in terms of relationships, I think that to love a person is to honor their mystery. There seems to be something really incompatible about saying you love someone and also believing that you figured out everything there is to know about them. Mm. Do you imagine me saying, I love Michelle and I have nothing left to learn about her? I, I can't imagine her even being able to hear me say I love her if I couple it with that last statement. And so I take Voltaire as saying, cherish those who love the truth, but mistrust any concept of love which has lost its desire to learn. And there are some people who have many great things to say and they should never fear saying them, but we should all fear becoming the kind of person who feels like, we only belong on the teaching side of truth. Oof. No. And mm. I feel often compelled to teach others, but mm-hmm. I also want to be compelled to learn. It's the thing we were talking yeah. about earlier with Stephen Furtick and Vody Bakum. I learn from them even though I disagree with them considerably, markedly, mm-hmm. significantly disagree with those people. And because I disagree with them, it allows me to learn from them because I don't take everything they say as truth. I'm not following a guru. I'm trying yeah. to suss out the truth from the untruth that is there, which brings me to this mm. third quote that I would ping off of your tweet of the week, TK. And this one is from Kafka. I was rereading The Metamorphosis recently, and I saw this line in it. All language is but a poor translation. And so mm. when we're talking about the light isn't really a light. That's not what it is. That is a word that is trying to translate, trying to communicate what the thing is Mm. that allows me to describe it to you. And so language is useful in that sense. But I would also say Mm -hmm. when he says it's a poor translation, a lot of this language leads to a lot of immense suffering. It's what you were talking about earlier, Ryan, with the Mm. difference between the spirit and the soul. And we get really tied up in these definitions. And I especially see this with different fundamentalists with respect to religions, right? So like if you look at the Christian tradition and and Calvinists who are arguing with the Arminians because of predestination and all of these other things, and all of a sudden you realize like, well, wait a minute, you're arguing about language, essentially. 
Mm. You're not arguing about the essence of this. Mm. What do we really mean by the words, right? Because quite often we use those words to dismiss as opposed to dive deeper into what the truth actually is. Yeah. And even when we do argue about the essence of things, because sometimes we do, we rarely get to the real argument because we don't get past the part about language. We can't even agree on what we agree about because we insist on telling people what they mean. We insist on getting hung up on words. In fact, just recently, I had someone challenge something that I said online, which is totally okay. And block them immediately. They well, <laughs> well I eventually did because I was like, okay, I'm not gonna waste my time. They I just, obviously are interested in the truth. <laughs> I was just like, I just don't believe, I just don't trust you. I, I don't believe you're arguing in good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but this person said, you're a classic conservative. And I said, I'm not, not that it has anything to do with the debate, but I'm not even a conservative. Just like if somebody accused me of being a billionaire, it's not that I mind being thought of as a billionaire, but from a completely non-emotional place, just letting you know the truth, I happen to not be a billionaire, you know? Um, Not that being misunderstood as a conservative is going to threaten anything for me, but, you know, just so you know, I'm not conservative. I don't identify as that. They came back and they said, yeah, you are. Hmm. Yes, you are. You know, but you can use whatever word you want. And this is kind of like the culture of dialogue, right? Where it's like, if someone says, well, here's what I meant. Well, I don't care what you meant because here's what you said. And I want to debate with you about words. And it's something that we can all easily be guilty of. But there's an immeasurable gap between words and the realities that we use words to describe. It's like if I'm driving on the highway and I want a meal or I need gas for my car And I see a sign that says, gas station, restaurant, exit 63A. That sign points me to what I need, but I don't pull my car up to the sign and try to fuel my tank or try to stick a a fork in the billboard, right? Because that sign cannot satisfy my hunger. That sign cannot give my car fuel. I have to go where the sign points me. And even when I follow that sign, it's possible for me to overlook the reality that I'm looking for. And so it's very important that we don't become so attached to the way that we describe things that we miss out the realities on the realities that these words are mere approximations for getting at. Yes. Mm. Mm. I used to respond to Twitter comments all the time. Josh helped me to see the light on that. I don't even... I don't even mess with it. I mean... Wait, can I, can I, can I hear y'all's take I on literally, like, I literally... I, like at this point, if I was to respond to anyone who accused me of anything or criticism or whatever it is, feedback, I welcome. Um, but, you know, so, it, you know, a, a troll who is just trying to, you know, trolls going to troll. We call them seagulls. You yeah. understand the reference there? Because yeah. no. seagull flies overhead. They shit on you. They fly, they away. fly away. They don't add any value at all. Yeah. And so I tend to take walking fe- the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the difference between feedback and criticism is feedback will not just show you what your problem, not just shit on you, but but give you a deeper understanding of what the problem actually is and maybe yeah. even a potential path toward getting away from the problem. And it doesn't mean you have to act on the, the feedback. Right. And also tr- trusting who has the feedback is really important to me. So I'll yeah. look at our Patreon audience, for example, yeah. 
and trust their feedback more mm-hmm. than I will a random person on Twitter. It doesn't mean that one person's more relevant than, than the other. I just know that this group of people is more invested in what we're doing mm-hmm. than the random person who probably doesn't even follow me on Twitter. They just yeah. wanted to be the seagull, fly yeah. overhead, yeah. and crap on us. So, I mean, so, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, what I would do at this point is I would respond and say, as you say, but I can... By not responding, it's kind of I'm already giving them that like oh okay well as you, I'll get I'll let you get the last word in here yeah um but yeah it's uh it's just it's my life is so much better not responding to comments so how do you distinguish or reading comments how do you distinguish the healthy discounting of trolls from the possible scenario where someone is genuinely seeking a deeper understanding or genuinely challenging you on an idea. But they just may not be great at articulating that in a in a way that right. But that's not know, that's not my problem. Yeah. It's not yeah. my problem if they're poor at communicating. Mm-hmm. If they're genuinely curious, that it usually manifests in questions that lead us to a deeper conversation. Yeah. If it's finger Rather pointing, than you're an idiot for yeah. even saying that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it may be true. I may be an idiot for saying that, but that's not a way that's going to induce productive conversation between the two of us. So I have to dismiss that. So I have to say no to that. So I can say yes to the curiosity, to the questions, Mm, to to the exploration that comes from true feedback. And by the way, if you have someone who is constantly just prodding and prodding because they're shit posting online, which by the way, I think is a total art the yep. <laughs> the that's why I prefer yeah. the term seagull to troll because I think trolling when done well through memes it's and Reddit it's entertaining right. and I think it's artistic. Oh, yeah. you look at Hotep Jesus and Mike Malice. These are two people who love to troll the people that troll them, and whether you agree with their positions or not, it's yeah. an art form. I, I couldn't is. even fake it like they it do. Is. It is, but for me, like the question of like, how do you determine whether or not you know it's healthy or unhealthy? Like, yeah. it's it's almost to me, and this is per this is my perspective. So I'm not saying this is what it is, and I'm not going to die on this hill. But it's like asking me, how do I get hydrated from Mountain Dew? It's like mm-hmm. if I was in the desert and all I had was Mountain Dew to drink. Of course, I'm going to drink it because that's all I have. But to, you know, but for me to explain to you, like, oh well, you know, Mountain Dew can actually be hydrating. I mean, that's it, that's yeah. that's that's how it feels to me personally. Amass it or trash it is a little segment we do. By the way, you can send in your amass it or trash it items. Usually, someone will send something in. They'll say, "Hey, should I get rid of this? Should I hold on to it?" Hints: amass it or trash it. Ryan mm-hmm. came up with the segment a few months ago. You can send your items into podcast at theminimalists.com. We didn't have one this week, but Podcast Sean sent this to me. It was a little meme <laughs> that I knew would be controversial. And so I'm going to set up the scene. I'm going to hand it to TK to read the meme itself. But I'm going to set the scene here. We'll also put a link or we'll put an image of it above my left shoulder. If you want to take a look at the video version of the podcast, you'll see it above me. But I'm going to describe it here for the audio listeners as well. You have this husband and wife couple who are at an election day booth. And it looks like they're registering to vote. And there's a sandwich board sign. <laughs> This says, register to vote. It is your right. And then the husband sort of looks pondered. His wife is signing up for this thing. And the husband is asking a question. And TK, here is the question that the husband is asking. Can you read that for our audio listeners here? Excuse me. Is this where I sign up to have my will forced on my neighbors through the state's monopoly on violence? <laughs> 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 oh man. Now, let's talk about this because I think all three of us have a different perspective on yeah. on this. 
in particular mean, but also the this um, right to vote. And TK, I'd love to get your perspective on this meme because I've never even thought about it this way. When the guy is saying, hey, is this where I sign up to have my will forced <laughs> on my neighbors through the state's monopoly on violence? What does that even mean? He's coming from the point of view that says, although political activism is often couched in the appealing language of freedom, what many people truly mean when you measure them by their behavior is they want the freedom to control how other people live according to their values. And they want to deny other people the freedom to control how they live according to those other people's values. And so whether one endorses it or fights against it, so much of what gets to be called politics is seen or framed as this power struggle between maybe one group and this binary system that we have in this country, this one group that says, we want your kids to study this. And the other group says, no, we want your kids to study this. We want your money to go here. And the other group, we want your money to go here. And this guy is basically kind of making light of that, you know? Now, of course, that's a political philosophy. That's a philosophy of what politics is all about that many people are going to disagree with and that some people are going to agree with. But that's what this meme is getting at. But I'll tell you, man, I had a, a fun moment with our guest, Dr. Bush, about this very matter. Because as, as many of our listeners know, and as you guys already know, I've already talked about this before, where I don't vote. I've never registered to vote. And I, I, I said to Dr. Bush, I go, the way you talk about things is so interesting. I'm curious to know if you're going to be the first person besides Josh and Ryan to not get angry about me telling you I don't vote. What do you think of that? Because I'll tell you, some people say this is a Christian nation or whatever it may be. I don't believe that at all. I, I, I believe the real religion of this country is voting because I think you can be an atheist, you can be a Christian, you can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican, and you're going to be hated by a lot of people. But if you really want to tick people off, don't walk into a room full of Democrats as a Republican. Don't walk into a room full of Republicans as a Democrat. Walk into any room whatsoever and say, I don't believe in this system at all. I think they're all clowns. Everybody hates that. And yes. so every four years, I have people preaching this philosophy to me. Uh, between those four years, I live in peace. I never talk with any about any, any, I never talk with people about politics. But then every four years, it comes up and people start pushing me to vote. So I asked Dr. Bush, I was like, what do you think of that? And he surprised me with his reaction, and I really liked it. He said, well, he goes, he acknowledges that our system has problems. And he says, in many ways, to vote in this system is to participate in a system that's rigged. But then he challenged me to broaden my imagination and say, just because your vote today might mean participating in a rigged system, don't give on the hope, don't give up on the hope of a world in which your vote could mean something different. Mm. And he talked about redefining what it means to vote, redefining what it means to do politics, redefining what it means to engage in social change. And I love it when people can bring a sense of imagination to discussions on social change without it being reduced to the same old, mm. boring, tired, outdated talking points yeah. about left versus right as if good and evil 
picks political parties right. to manifest itself. They're, they're both evil. They're both good. They're both whatever, man. But one thing he said, too, that stood out to me is he said, uh, he goes, the problem is, is when we vote and walk away, we put our hands in the air and we feel mm. warm and fuzzy. We go, we voted and we don't have to do anything. Yeah. And, and I think that's where uh, the, the, the idea of voting can be pernicious is when you vote for someone and it's, it's like, it's like you, you vote for the right president. Oh, and now they're going to clean my room up for me. They're going to, everything's going to be fine because I voted for this one person. When really, when you walk away from that voting booth, you still have a responsibility when you walk back to your community. And that voting booth is probably the littlest effort that you can give to your community. Yeah. And, the, and, and that's where I love he differentiated. He's like, look, if you're voting and walking away and saying, oh, yeah. I did my job and feel warm and fuzzy, like that is where it can um, be, yeah, again, just be a bit pernicious. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here is uh, in terms of amass it or trash it is TK for his personal vote. He says trash it. Ryan says amass it, meaning vote. Right. You, you, you vote. I say, I say, I, I for say, you. I, yeah, for me. Yeah. But, but it's, but it's not just, yeah, but it's not even about that. It's more about like, cause I'm not going to be sit here and be like, oh, I think you should vote. No, I know. I said it's, for you. It's more, yeah. It's more about, it's more about, um, yeah, like I, yeah, exactly for me. So what is best for you? So like I support TK not voting. I support uh, myself voting. The question is, is like, wh- what do you, what do you want to accomplish with that vote? If it's out of, laziness because you don't want to vote well then i would say that's the wrong reason why to not vote but your non-vote is actually a vote in its own way um so it's my my, it's be intentional with your vote that's what it is right can i I, let me just let me add this real quick because i know we're going over on time so you can kill that dinger i'm going to keep going here for a bit (laughs) (laughs) The, the meme is pointing out something i think additional here though and this is where i think we have to find a way to meet in the middle here because i understand both perspectives here, but I think what the guy is saying in this meme is, hey, if I want something else to happen to my neighbor, I want your taxes, say, TK, you're my next door neighbor, and I want your taxes to go up so that, and you don't have any kids, but so my kid can better, can have a better school. What I'm using is the government's monopoly on violence, Mm. as he says, to get more money from you by, uh, by pressuring the government through a a majority, 51% of the people in the community now say, we want TK's money to go toward this thing. And I think fundamentally what they're talking about is an ethical or moral quandary here of how, how can we say that I want to do this with TK's rights or money or whatever? Yeah. So, so there's, there's an extra layer here that I had never thought of that layer before. Yeah, so th- this actually brings out a very beautiful, important, I would say nonpartisan insight that's very helpful to anyone regardless of their political orientation. There is a distinction between, let's say, your ethics, beliefs about what people should and should not do, and policies, which is the use of legislative force to compel people to do or refrain from doing certain things. So anytime you say that should be illegal, What you're really saying is that the government should have the right to use violence or the threat of violence to stop people from doing that. So, for instance, you know, um, if if I see someone smoking weed Mm -hmm. and it annoys me and I go, well, that should be illegal. That's not my actual position. But if I see that and I go, that should be illegal. What I mean, whether I know that or not, is that government should have the power to use violence or the threat of violence to forcibly prevent people from doing that. Now, we all can have different beliefs about when or when that's not appropriate. 
But the next time you think to yourself, that should be illegal, a good question to ask is, do I just mean on a social or ethical level that people shouldn't do that? Or do I also mean I would like to see power used to forcibly prevent them from doing that? I don't think people should waste their time watching SpongeBob reruns all day, but I still want them to choose that. I don't believe people should eat fast food every day all day, but I don't want that to be illegal because I don't want the government to have the power to forcibly prevent you from consuming that. I just want to live in a world where you make certain kinds of choices and I might engage in voluntary actions to try to influence you or bring about the world that I want to see. But I think that's a good question for any of us to ask when we see things that frustrate us and that we want them to stop. How do you want them to stop? Through force or through some other means? Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it comes down to uh, as long as you're not harming other people, like, you know, that's, that is where I draw the line. Like, are you causing harm to someone else? And unfortunately, we don't vote just based on that. We yeah. vote on our on our preferences. And it's funny because you talked about the Christian nation and like my gut, and help me unpack this and help me look at it differently, TK, but my yeah. gut says if the people who didn't care about voting didn't vote, we would eventually become a Christian nation. Because I think that, I think that most people vote on religious preferences. Hmm. And I or think- Or anti-religious preferences. Or, well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying though. I think that, I think that the anti-religious folks are probably, they're less worried about voting because they could care less what people do, Hmm. where the religious folks are much more concerned about controlling. And they're much more concerned about like, no, you need to do it this way because this is what the Bible says is the way it needs to be done. Um, Yeah, yeah, if that makes any sense at all. It does. Yeah, well, I, I wish Christians were as united as that concern makes it appear, Mm -hmm. but we would not be any less divided if all the non-Christians were deleted from the earth overnight. Because in every Christian community, no Mm -hmm. matter how you want to divide it up denominationally or even in the Catholic church, there are people who profess to practice that religion who have different beliefs about everything from abortion, LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. And of course, the easy way out is to say, oh, well, that's not a true Christian. Well, of course, right? Right. But um, Christian community, unfortunately, is just as divided as anyone else. And and, and that proves an important point about humanity, that Mm. no matter how much you try to homogenize society, if you had some magic button to make us all the same in Mm. some way, same skin color, same religion, one thing we have proven throughout history to be exceptionally good at is the ability to find some superficial quality that we can use as a basis for hating one another. Mm. We've always done that. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It's a great point. I think we can all agree, though, that SpongeBob rerun should be illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Advertisements suck, y'all. A little segment we do here where we review a sucky advertisement. Danny, what do you got for us on the screen? Jordan's going to put it above my left shoulder here. And then Malabama, someone sent this in. Who is this from? This is from Chelsea. This has got to be in Santa Monica or something. It's somewhere, but I think it's uh, it's somewhere down in San Diego, maybe. But you can send your sucky ads into podcast at theminimalists.com. Who's making that sound? Oh, me. Sorry. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Chelsea sent this in. She said, my friends and I spent $20 to park at Torrey Pines State Reserve to have a relaxing ad-free Sunday by the pristine beach. However, every few minutes, an airplane would fly over the ocean (laughs) with an enormous flag behind it advertising either an alcoholic beverage or a strip club called Cheetahs. Ooh, Cheetahs. Now, here's the... TK's favorite strip club. No, I was making that noise because I'm so 
disapprove. That's my disapproval noise. Ah. Uh, like tisk tisk tisk. Like this is what an invasive advertisement. Yes. And so I I looked at the third largest city in the world, Sao Paulo, when they back in 2007 made outdoor advertisements illegal. Mm-hmm. So they made them through the state's monopoly on violence, mm-hmm. right? And to me, I see this as, you know, and the people voted on this, by the way. It wasn't one politician who, you know, was sort of like sitting back and saying, oh, I've been paid off by anti-ad <laughs> propaganda. No, it was the, the people who said, hey, there's a lot of litter here. And that's really what we're talking about. And we're talking about an advertisement like this. And I think advertisements writ large, we're talking about our huge litter problem that we have, digital litter, and now the sky litter, which is actually polluting the earth in a way to advertise. So yes, you have the airplane exhaust that is using, that that is pulling along these terrible advertisements. I'm not sure what Danny is doing over here, but he's trying to to zoom zoom in. in. It's all good, man. Doesn't even, Um, whatever the ad is, it sucks. (laughs) That is, uh, I, I think you could say that 99.9% right. of the time, right. <laughs> and it would be true. And and so when I see the the litter that is going on here, now it's just a new type of litter that we're not used to. And I see this at the beach sometimes as well when I'm at a beach in Los Angeles. Thankfully, I don't ever see it in Ventura County. At least I haven't yet. I may at some point because someone has decided they want to have one of these sky riders that... Uh, brings one of these giant billboards behind it. And often they're advertising some fairly benign things. I saw one for Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield once, and it's like, why do they need to fly a plane to tell me about my own insurance, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet then you have these where it's like, Mom, what is cheetahs? And it's like, okay, I'm fine with having that conversation with Ella, but I know a lot of parents don't want to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. But also the beer ads and everything else, it is getting in the way of the tranquility. And the politicians in Sao Paulo and the people of Sao Paulo recognize this. 15,000 billboards, bus ads, pile-on signs were removed. And last time you and I went to Sao Paulo, it was amazing. And I noticed this mm-hmm. when we were driving. So four states in the United States don't allow billboards. And I didn't recognize this until we were in Vermont. We had a tour stop in Vermont, mm-hmm. 2017, our first tour stop of the Less Is Now tour. And we're driving. And it's so Vermont's beautiful, tranquil, especially the time of year we were there. It was just green and it was beautiful. And then we get to Massachusetts and all of a sudden something's different. It's all of the billboards, billboard after billboard. Mm-hmm. And it's litter everywhere, right? And I have no choice. It's like smog it's visual smog in a way. And so this is where it's difficult for me to say like, yeah, to me, it feels like these things should be illegal because it is a type of litter or smog that I don't want in my own life. It's secondhand smoke that I have no control over. Mm. So my experience of that just recently is Michelle and I were driving and we saw like a a mini, what do you call the billboards, that are, the digital billboards? We saw like a mini digital billboard on top of a normal looking car. It yeah. wasn't a taxi. Like an Uber. Yeah. I was like, is that an Uber? Like, are they selling ad space on top? Yep. Yeah. yeah I'm like, are. whoa, yeah, this are. is crazy. Or, or, or when you go to a restaurant, not every restaurant, but you go to some restaurants and you go to the urinal and, and they got a TV right in front of you and you're watching commercials the whole yeah. time. Or you go to pump your gas. There's a little screen there. And there's a commercial you're watching the whole time. And I'm like, man, ads are everywhere. They're invading every aspect of our lives. But here's an optimistic span on it. that I'm, I'm, It's an idea that I'm beginning to play, play around with. 
One thing that all advertisers get right is that there is great value to where we put our attention as human beings. And if you are someone who can compel people's attention, that makes you valuable in some kind of way. And they are the first group to figure out a way to quantify that value and leverage it. But just because you're the first, it doesn't mean you're the only, it doesn't mean you're the best. Sam Bowie, ever heard of the name? He was picked first before Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. Just because you're the first doesn't mean you're the best or that you're the one that everyone's going to really remember. I think in the next chapter of human evolution, advertisers were the first to figure out how to quantify and leverage the value of human attention in such a powerful way. But I believe the connectivity of the internet, the internet of things, the emergence of things like micropayments and the economic possibilities that open up with that and so many other things that we're beginning to figure out. As human beings, we're going to figure out how to leverage our capacity to compel attention in a way that's going to put advertising, third-party advertising out of business without having to use the law. That's my optimistic interpretation. I hope this conversation evolves as we go through time as I continue to work on this and wrestle with this. But that's my belief so far. Let's move on to the Photo Friday home tour. If you subscribe to the video version of the private podcast, then last Friday I sent you this photo. I I call this entryway peep. And uh, we'll zoom in in a moment. You'll see why I call it this. So this is our entryway slash hallway. You can see some objects we have here on the shelf when you walk into our home. And I started to take this picture. And right as I took it, a little peep here came out of the bathroom, Ella. And you can see the expression on her face. We'll show it here in a moment. But this is our our shelf. In fact, Ryan, when you were at our house, you'll probably remember these shelves were painted a very hideous blue. (laughs) So... I do, you know, I don't pay attention to detail like that, man. <laughs> <laughs> it bothered me every single day. And so we repainted the shelves here. We have a few different beautiful objects on the shelf that are pieces of art that we really enjoy. We don't tend to put artwork on the walls, but because we have shelves, we have just a few different pieces of art. There's a Kafka book there. There's a little bowl where I keep my keys. You can see that small or large, long wooden dish. That's where we tend to keep our electronics. So we have what we call the entryway rule when we walk into our home, TK, because we don't want our phones following us around the house, our connectivity following us around the house. And so as soon as we walk in the door, we just set our phone. There was even a charger there so I can charge my phone. So if I need access to my phone, I got it right there. If I need to text someone, if I need to make a phone call, I want to respond to something, I can walk over there and I can pick up my phone. I can respond to someone. But then I put it back here in the entryway. We call it the entryway. It stays there. It stays right there. Yeah. Throughout the day, whenever I'm home. It goes there so the the phone doesn't follow me around. It's not constantly tugging at my attention. By the way, I love this image now because now when you text me in the future, I'm going to imagine that you're running giddily to your phone (laughs) as you hear that notification from me (laughs) and you're just giggling the whole time and you're so happy to be standing in that spot texting me back. In a way, (laughs) it's it's turned into like a home phone. Remember when we used to have home phones, a wired Mm -hmm. phone? This is sort of that. The phone is tethered to the entryway and I try not to let it follow me around the house. And then we have a few other just bits of uh, art on the shelf there as well. And then you could, if you actually look, you could see the, uh, we have these bookends and Ryan and I have written, what, four books together. And all four of them have different Japanese, Chinese, Korean 
uh, all these different a- Asian languages that they've been translated into. So I, what I did is all the ones I couldn't read. So Japanese, Korean, et cetera. I, I can't even make out the characters. I know they're beautiful. I have a little collection there of our books of minimalism and love people use things. And, and you can see the, the tiny little collection of, of foreign books, which by the way, you can find all of our books. Uh, we, I think they've been a couple dozen languages at this point. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. The minimalists.com slash foreign to find the language that is your language. So it could be Portuguese. It could be German. It can be Australian, British, <laughs> UK, English, <laughs> literally. Yes. Um, but then let's zoom in on Ella here. We, we caught her in this photo. <laughs> this is why I call her little peep because she's clearly been influenced by, by SoundCloud rap mm-hmm. recently. She has all these face, <laughs> she has all these face tattoos mm-hmm. now. And, uh, she actually, at her unschool, they were doing like these temporary tattoos. And she's mm. like, I want to put some on my face because it's like the one place where her mom doesn't have tattoos. And I think she wanted to separate herself from her mom. Mm. And so she walked around for several days with neck and face tattoos. Mm-hmm. But God, she looks just like her mom uh, mm. in this photo. She looks way <laughs> older than nine years old. She uh, had her on stage debut last weekend yeah. at the yeah, last Sunday did. symposium. Yeah, she did great. Rock star. So she proud. was so happy. Like we went backstage. She was like, did you see how much they liked me? <laughs> I'm like, of course they liked you, Ella. Who wouldn't like you? Did they you hear they her. applauded loud for me? <laughs> oh. It was so good. And she nailed her talk. Yeah. It was 17 minutes long. We were going to put it up at TED.com. <laughs> it, was three, it was three sentences long. Yeah. So, so it could have just man. been one sentence with some commas in there, actually. Yeah. Yeah. A semicolon and right. M dash. Exactly. Yeah. Where's podcast Sean where you need him? Mm-hmm. He has a bag full of M dashes. <laughs> so this is our little photo Friday. Uh, we send these out to you every Friday. A little peep into our homes. We send it out to anyone who subscribes to the video version of our <clears throat> private podcast. We have any more questions from our Patreon live stream? Maybe we dive into one more of those before we wrap up. We have one more from Jessica. She said, I still cry when thinking about how I didn't make it home in time to say goodbye to my grandfather eight years ago. How can one find peace with a loss when you didn't have that final moment together? I felt the same way about my mom. And I was talking to this uh, about this with Ryan and, and Zach and TK earlier when Literally, I we were sitting. I was in Ryan's blue pickup truck. Yeah, he was, was dr- driving me, dropping you off right at the front of the airport. There, yeah, you're I, kind of in a hurry. Yes, yeah, yeah. and, and you know, worried. not your fault. It was my fault for being late picking you up. <laughs> <laughs> I was frantic, and understandably so, right? And we're literally driving down Terminal Drive, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, of course the. It, that that line made it into uh, everything that remains, and it almost felt too on the nose. But it was true. That's exactly yeah. what happened. Yes. Like if you wrote that into a fictive story, you'd be like, "Hey, guys, a little too on the nose, right?" Driving down Terminal Drive when you got the phone call, and I got the phone call from the hospice facility that mm-hmm. my mom had transitioned at that moment, and I, um, yeah, I, I, I feel exactly what you feel. I wish I could have been there. Right. But since then, and this was this phenomenon, I've never heard anyone else talk about this. I've, there was about a day or so later, as I was falling asleep, I realized it could be the neurons in my head playing with me, but I heard, I heard my mom's voice. And she said, 
It's going to be okay, sweetheart. Oh. And that's all she said. And I realized that I could still communicate to whatever that is. You could call it soul, energy, you know, spirit. I don't care what you call it. But the vast, infinite non-duality, right? Mm. Whatever goes on beyond our bodies, recognizing it's all connected. In life mm. and death, it's all connected. That enabled me to to let go. That's powerful, man. Yeah, I um hmm. I'm just gonna spit it out. The thought I have is like the idea that there's a sadness arising within someone because they didn't get to complete some something the way that they wanted to complete it. Um, I would challenge them to focus on not their perspective, but their their loved one's perspective who passed away. And my, my guess is, Jessica, that your grandfather knew that you loved him and he was very appreciative to have you as a granddaughter. And um, I don't know, I think I would challenge you to focus on the relationship you did have and, and, and try to focus less on the way you wish things were, if that makes any sense at all. I'm trying not to sound like a jerk here because it's I'm not meaning it in that way at all. No, you don't sound like a jerk. In fact, what I'm hearing is one of the quotes I didn't read from that Alan Watts death quotes article. And he says, when someone passes away, there is no right or wrong way to feel. There are no wrong feelings. So mm. you're not wrong for feeling this way, right? right? Right. But if you want to move on, then of course you have to let go. And I, I think you still get to decide when you have that final moment. I mean, I, I believe that your grandfather is still alive. As we talked about earlier, the body being a broadcasting device for the soul. Hang on, everybody who doesn't believe in that kind of stuff. Just hang on. But I got to start somewhere. I believe your grandfather is still alive. And the opportunity to say goodbye to him still exists. And the final moment together is the moment where you make that choice to give it closure. And I think there's something deeply meaningful about taking that moment even after he's gone and telling him what you appreciate about his life, telling him how much he meant to you and how you would like to honor him. For those who don't believe that there is an immaterial self that continues on after death, then from a material standpoint, his life is still in you and he lives in you, in your DNA. And you get to speak to him and speak for him every single day by allowing the very best of what he represented, what he stood for in your life, representing that to other people. But I wouldn't be hard on myself about missing that moment. And I wouldn't allow myself to adopt the narrative that said, that says, my relationship to him is defined by his final moment. I would say my relationship to him is defined by all of the moments that preceded that and by all of the moments that I can allow to live inside of me beyond that. All right, Joe, let's return to the public podcast for a moment. We've just wrapped up a three-hour private podcast that folks can check out over at patreon.com slash The Minimalist. Before we get to our added value segment, I'm returning to our roots for this added value segment. You're going to get 
immense value from this. Real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of The Minimalist. We just released 20 more tickets to our sold-out Sunday Symposium that's going on in October. These Sunday Symposium events, they're in Los Angeles, they're downtown, we're hanging out with y'all, we're giving out hugs, a lot of hugs, well, 200 plus hugs. Uh, Only 200 people are able to make it into the venue because the venue only seats 200 people. Mm. So are these intimate events where we talk to you, not in a preachy way, but to help understand some truths that are profound to each of us. And so these are different from our typical tour stops. We meet together. It's kind of like church, but not like church at all. We're not (laughs) preaching to you. We're not converting you to anything. It's certainly not a cult. Our very first one, we had Amanda Montel there and uh, she she made sure we weren't starting a cult, right? <laughs> Which was beautiful. Uh, we had Ella, my daughter, at the last one. She gave, and it was her first time on stage, nine years old, nailed mm-hmm. it there. On, now she may start her own cult. Yeah, yeah. I'm following her. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's found some truths. It's called Sunday Symposium. We have special guests. We have music. We have a special time together. Half the tickets are free, half are paid. And it's a sold out event, but we just released 20 more free tickets. You can find those right now. Get there today because they will sell out on the first day because they're free. Mm -hmm. Sundaysymposium.com. If they do sell out, please, please get on the wait list so we can let you know if someone's giving up their tickets. We'll welcome you in there. We really enjoy having you there in person. There's something about these in-person experiences, TK, that allows us to communicate in an intimate setting that you can't always do in front of a microphone. Absolutely. I mean, just as there is the difference between standing next to a tree and being out in nature versus looking at things through a screen, there's just a big difference between having the people in the room. It's no longer doing a podcast for an audience. It's an act of co-creation that emerges spontaneously. And it's so cool. It's so fun. And There's no other way to describe it than that. It's just a celebratory dance of energy. Like you got to be there. Like Frank Sinatra says, be there. And these are the, Ryan, these are the smallest tour stops we've done in years Mm. uh, because we're intentionally keeping this small, just 200 people. If you do want to buy a ticket, you're welcome to do that. Sundaysymposium.com. That helps us pay for the venue. TK, Ryan, and I all lose money on this event. We make sure all the staff is paid, the venue is paid, et cetera but we're trying to create this experience for you in person. If you're anywhere in Southern California, join us October 30th or any of the future events. You can get on the wait list if it is sold out. Sundaysymposium.com for our added value this week. Guys, you probably saw this. We were at the green room at Sunday Symposium. I just bought this for our studio and I tested it at my house as well. This is a CO2 meter. It measures other things as well, like temperature and barometric pressure and humidity and and all those other things which are interesting. But I've been getting these weird headaches for the last month and a half and I couldn't figure out why. I think I've cracked the code Mm. because the guest house that I live in I usually keep it very sealed up, right? I'm just constantly breathing all the time, heavily, just hyperventilating whenever I'm by myself. It's, hey, don't kink shame me, Ryan. <laughs> hey, man, whatever you're into, bro. This, uh, we'll put a link to this particular one in the show notes. I don't care if you uh, get this one or any other CO2 monitor. This one is a little bit on the pricier side. It's a couple hundred bucks, but uh, from all the reviews I read, it is the most... 
um, accurate. Now, I wanted to bring this back because added value, and we started this segment way back in 2015 on the first episode of the Minimalist Podcast. It was really about, hey, advertisements suck, but sometimes we can talk about actual physical goods. Even as the minimalist, we can talk about physical goods mm-hmm. that add value to our lives. We get that a lot, by the way. People are like, hey, I'm sensing a contradiction here. You say advertisements suck, but then you talk about things that add value to your life. Isn't that the same as advertisements? Perfect opportunity to speak We are to walking contradictions. Minimalists are no minimalists. Every human is a walking contradiction. <laughs> Amen. Now, what I'll say is this is not an advertisement. Advertisement would be if this company, which is called SFA Aeronaut 4, I have no idea who they are. They're not paying us to talk about this product. And if they mm. did, it'd be hard for me to give an unbiased review because what if it breaks? What if it sucks? What if I didn't like it, but now I have to talk about it? Or when mm. I listen to my favorite podcast, they're talking about McDonald's or Coors. I want to throw up onto my device because I'm like, what are you doing? You know, uh, you're just propagating this poison because I'm guessing you don't actually get value from those things. Or even if they do, now they're being paid to talk about it, right? I'm not being paid to talk about this. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. You're welcome to check it out. I don't care if you have a CO2 meter or not. Here's what I realize, and I'm realizing it here in this room. You look at this, if you're, if you're watching the video version of this, our current CO2 level is 2,100. Now, outdoor air is around 400. Mm-hmm. Acceptable healthy, breathable air is, uh, is below 1,000. Mm-hmm. And then it gets into the yellow range. We're high into the red range. As soon as you get above 2,000, that means the CO2 level in the studio, which when I first came in here this morning, was about 500. Great air quality. Yeah. What's happening though, Ryan? There's a million people breathing right now. I CO2. told you to stop breathing. I'm, wonder- I'm wondering, is there a way, um, can, we, can we bring oxygen tanks in? I'm serious bring oxygen tanks in here and like release oxygen into the air to count to counter this. Because what I, what I noticed is when we came back from break, you know, we let all the air conditioning out. I'm sweating down my back, which is, which is fine. Um, I mean, it's harder for me to concentrate, but I'm wondering because as soon as we close the windows, it gets right back up. Yeah. So what we do is we open the windows and this, this goes down because we're letting the oxygen in. The the answer to your question is, I don't know if we could bring something in that would not add noise to the podcast. I'm just talking about like when it gets to a certain level during the break, we can just turn the oxygen on. We'll, we'll look into it, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. But here, here's what I, I noticed. Yeah. My sleep is now better. because All I had to do is crack some windows. Mm. And all of a sudden, it, when I first turned this on, it was 2300. And where I lived, I just opened a few windows. And within half an hour, we're back to outdoor levels. And mm. so someone, a friend of ours, Jeff Saris, who's our web developer, he, he was telling me about this, like, oh, people who are often sick in their homes because we're trapped in our homes all the time and we're breathing all of the stale air, which made sense to me intuitively. I don't know why I never thought about this before. Mm. Why haven't I ever thought about the level of CO2 that is in my home? Is it a dangerous level? Is it safe? Well, now I know, and I can bring this around anywhere. I put it in the green room. Our green room was fine. I could put it here in the studio. Studio is fine for a while until we're all in here for three hours breathing in or breathing out all the CO2. Another thing you can do is adding plants to your home Mm. that will obviously take in the CO2 and allow you to breathe in more oxygen. We need plants in the studio. There you go. I hear, I hear you're an industry plant. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so right now, windows are closed. The air is off. What if we kept the windows closed? We turn the air conditioning on. What would happen to those CO2 levels? Stay it it would improve slightly, but not nearly as much as if you just opened up the windows. Right. Because okay. yeah. we're letting some out, but just not enough. Yeah, you're not going to be getting enough fresh air. And so you want that outdoor air. 
and, and you can do it really easily. I mean, and it's free too. Just simply yeah. open up your windows. Mm. All of a sudden, you're now breathing oxygen. If you're dealing with headaches or any sort of chronic illness from being trapped inside an office or whatever, getting a CO2 meter to just figure out what is the CO2 level of where I spend most of my time. It could be your desk. Yeah. It could be in your home. It could be in your garage. It could be in your car. That's another thing. I brought it in the car on the way down. I realized I don't want to recycle the air in my car. This was off the charts. As soon as I hit that button, this brought in the air from the outside. Mm. This went back down to outdoor levels immediately. I do not take for granted that like I'm not that sensitive to things. Like I really appreciate that. Josh is like, oh, it's 2100. It could be 2100 or 500, and I feel the same. And yeah. and I, uh, yeah, I just I just don't I don't want to take that for granted that I'm because I'm sure my body will eventually stop processing things the way it processes. Um, but yeah, I just, yeah, I, I'm, and I could also eat a bucket of nails and like digest that just fine. Yes, but it could. <laughs> That's cause... what happened for lunch, actually. Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's, uh, well, what could happen here, though, is it could be contributing long term to some sort of chronic illness that you're not experiencing mm. acutely right now mm. because it's the build up over time. Yeah. That, and, and so, yes, I might be more sensitive th- than you, mm. but in a way, I'm simply the canary in the coal mine. Mm, yeah. And, there is danger right around the corner for you, just like everyone else. Like If you don't have any oxygen, at some level, you're going to die, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, I need to wrap this up because I need to breathe some oxygen. Mm -hmm. Let's play you out with a song. This one is called Death with Dignity. It's from my favorite Sufjan Stevens album. He's one of my favorite artists. This album is called Carrie and Lowell. And the song is about forgiving so that you can let go, even when you want to cling. One of my favorite lyrics from uh, the song is, I forgive you, mother. I can hear you. And I long to be near you. But every road leads to an end. That's awesome. And so as we end this episode, thank you so much to Dr. Zach Bush for joining us. You can check him out. We'll put a link to everything that he's working on in the show notes. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Spirit of my silence, I can hear you, but I'm afraid to be near you, and I don't know where to begin. There's a forest and an acre before us But I don't know where to begin But I don't know where to begin Again I lost my strength completely Oh be near me, tired old mare And flowers on the table Is it real or a fable? Well, I suppose A friend is a friend 
this will end. Chimney Swift that finds me, be my keeper. Silhouette of the cedar. What is that song you sing for the dead? What is that song you sing for the dead? I see the signal searchlight strike me. Nothing to prove. Well, I got nothing to prove. Never see us again.